what a week and what a podcast. It's London Marathon Week. And forget about Mo Farah versus Ella Kipchoge or the greatest women's marathon field ever assembled. Everyone's talking about Mo Farah versus Haile Gebrselassie. Allegations of theft, a brawl at Haile G's hotel. If there was any goodwill between these two greats, it's now gone. Plus, you've got Michael Norman opening the season in 43-45. Ryan Krauser with the fourth longest Sean put ever. The marathon debut of Emily Sisson. And thanks to a great new sponsor of Let's Run.com, Hoka One One, we will be exploring, yes, the Ultra Marathon. We have special guest Sage Canada. He's a friend of Let's Run.com and Ultra Marathoner to help us start tackling the question what are the greatest ultra marathons in the world? That's at the end, and we'll be giving away some great Hoka prizes as we explore the Ultra Marathon through the month of May. But this podcast is also sponsored by Health IQ. If you want to save a ton on life insurance just because you run, go to letsrun.com slash health IQ and you could save tens of thousands of dollars over 30 years. All right, let's get started. In the red corner, five foot five, 119 pounds from the great country of Ethiopia, we have the two-time Olympic 10,000 meter champion, the former world record holder at 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters, Haile Gebrselassie. And in the blue corner, five foot nine from the United Kingdom, 128 pounds, the two-time double 5K, 10K Olympic champion, Mo Farah. Welcome everyone to Let's Run.com's Track Talk. Haile versus Farah is definitely not the heavyweight battle we thought we'd have this weekend in London, but it's the story of London. It's what we're talking about. This is a special London Marathon preview edition of Track Talk. Jonathan Galt in London. Everyone's talking there about Haile G versus Mo Farah off the track. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, that has been undoubtedly the story of the two days that I've been in London for. It began somewhat strangely at the end of the first press conference on Wednesday. It was just Farah and Kipchoge on the stage with Tim Hutchings moderating, and they'd finished taking questions from journalists. They were free to leave. But before he left the stage, Mo Farah asked Tim Hutchings if he could just address the media about something, which is sort of odd. Generally, athletes won't do that. They're fine just saying as little as possible. Farah wanted to mention that he had been the victim of a burglary while he was in Ethiopia at Hali Gebrselassie's hotel where he was staying for his London Marathon training block. And he called out Hailey by name. He said he was really disappointed. I don't know if he said really disappointed. He said he was disappointed in Hailey for not resolving the matter in the manner that Farah felt fit because he had a some money stolen, but also a watch that had been given to him as a gift by his wife. And he views that as irreplaceable. So he's upset that that was taken from him and seemed a little odd, but we wrote a story about it, put it up. And then all hell broke loose when Hailey came out with his response last night was alleging that Farah got in an altercation with an athlete, a married athlete actually was the term that Hailey used very unusual wording. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? That's something we've been trying to figure out. The athlete was married. We now have a story with some quotes from him on Let's Run.com that you can read. 
but also that Farah didn't pay his room bill, and it's just sort of been back and forth. Apparently, there's supposed to be another statement coming out from Mo Farah's camp sometime today. It's Thursday afternoon in the UK here, so I imagine you will have heard it by the time this podcast posts. But yeah, it's just been very strange. It's all anyone's been talking about in the media center. We do have an awesome race, two awesome races, in fact, in London this weekend. But Farah versus Gebra Selassie is the headliner right now. It's crazy to think that anything could have taken away from Farah versus Kipchoge in the marathon. I mean, London is so stacked. We'll get to breaking down the London races in a second, but we have the top five in the watchrun.com world marathon rankings from last year, both on the men's and women's side squaring off in one race. That's never happened again. And the race director, right? Noticed that as well, John. Yeah. Keep Racia. He actually spoke just before fire and Kipchoge and gave a shout out. He said, the fields are great. They have, we have the top five. I, was, I didn't know where he was going with that. He said the top five been the world rankings by let's run.com. And I was like, Oh, okay. Hugh Brasher reads let's run.com or at least one of his assistants does. And uh, it's interesting that they used our rankings. I've spent a lot of time on those rankings, so I'd like to think they're pretty accurate, but yeah, these fields totally stacked men and women, Farah Kipchoge, Mary Katani, Vivian Chariot, so many, so many stars. And then Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson from the United States, Sisson's making her debut. Both of them are trying to run fast. There's really a ton of great storylines in London, as always. Yeah, in terms of, you know, Brasher saying it and making your rankings feel important, I think most Americans, you're half British, John, so you wouldn't appreciate it. But when someone says something with an accent, it just sounds so much more intelligent. So we really believe them. And But also, the first time I ever went to London for the marathon, I think it was 2007 for Ryan Hall's debut. And a British journalist there, saw me on Let's Run, and he's like, oh, I go there every day for running news. And this is somebody, you know, covers the sport, but they also, you know, they're, they're covering soccer and other sports as well. So Let's Run.com was his homepage or his daily check, so that made me feel good. But this back to this Gabriel Selassie Farah thing, and the most recent article is by our sort of special correspondent to Let's Run in Ethiopia, Elias Meseret, and... He's written an article where Tsege, um, the victim of the alleged assault by Mofara, sort of downplays it and says, look, this was a minor thing. Yes, it was a, you know, he calls it a brawl, but he says, you know, I was kicked in the neck, but I was not, I think the most recent article by Sean Engle in The Guardian, Gabriel Selassie said that Farah um, punched and kicked him. In our article, he's saying, look, no, I was, I guess I should read a quote here from this. But he says, quote, Gabriel Selassie's claim that Mo kicked and shoved me is not correct. Mo's hit on my neck was very minor. So he was kicked in the neck, but he's saying it's very minor. And I think all in all, that's a good thing. There's clearly a lot of bad blood between these two. If you get a bunch of stuff stolen at a hotel, I can see how far I was upset. But the other side of this thing is, according to Gabriel Selassie, like, he sent in a couple of his employees. I think was it five employees, and they were in jail for three weeks. Like they went and were investigated for three weeks. Where this isn't like oh, we're investigating for a crime. It sounds like they were jailed in Ethiopia for three weeks and then released because there was no proof that they stole the money. So I can see how if you're highly Gabrielassi and Farah comes out with this thing yesterday, making a point essentially to sort of publicly call you out, embarrass you. 
you fire back with something, but what'd you fire back with? I think it's gotta be factual. And it sounds like I'm sure Gabriel Selassie would, would say, Oh, there was a fight, but he, the wording needs to be much better from Geb. I feel the wording was so weird. There's a lot of poor English in it yesterday, but when he said married athlete, people were even sort of wondering like, is this some sort of something worse, you know, like a sexual assault, what's going on? Why use the term married athlete? But I think he was just getting at that the wife of Sisse was there. And Sisse also says his wife was not struck. You know, there was a confrontation between Sisse, Farah and the wife, and then it became physical, but she, the wife was not struck. So maybe they were wrestling on the ground and kicked each other. Uh, who knows? But the good thing is, I think it's a good thing, right? This is being called minor by the alleged victim. Yeah. I got to say, yesterday and today, is this what it feels like to cover the NBA every day? Because it always seems like there are sort of feuds or squabbles, maybe not fights or brawls, but stuff like this, some players being petty towards some other player, there's always always something going on in the NBA and sort of what I felt like before this event. But yeah, the thing I take away from it is neither of them really comes out looking good for this. I know I seems to me that Farah was quite upset with it. Otherwise, why would he even bring it up unprompted at the end of the press conference? But what I don't really see what he has to gain by doing that. Neither of them come off looking that good. I guess he calls out highly, but then highly called him out for some misbehavior. And it doesn't sound regardless of what went on. It's not good. If you're a four-time Olympic champion to be getting in some sort of brawl with someone, you know, even if you didn't necessarily start it, still sort of unclear how that went. It's just kind of a bad situation. This isn't the sort of press you would want to have around you before the biggest race of your year. But again, Farah seems like he said this doesn't isn't going to affect how he races. And I don't really see how it was. I don't think he really is going to be paying too much attention. He's going to go out there and race. He's not going to get dropped by Kipchoge because he was thinking about some fight he was in or not in a few months ago. Yeah, one more question. You said that Hutching said, did Farah have anything else to say? Was he, do you think Tim knew this, that Farah wanted to get this off his chest? No, that's not how it happened. No, no, no. Tim essentially said everyone is done. Like he was going, they were going to go off the stage. He said, this is the conclusion of this session. Mo wasn't going to be available for one-to-one interviews afterwards. So Mo was just going to leave. Then Mo asked Tim to talk. So Tim didn't prompt anything. Wow. So he just really, on his own, got it out there. And, I mean, it, it shows the platform these athletes have, but it's such – Mo, he doesn't talk to the press, I mean, very often, right? I think, personally, it would be better for Mo to sort of do, like, you know, come on a podcast, do things from time to time, but he's pretty guarded. He's so popular, he, he doesn't need to. But you don't see the human side of Mo, and we see it from time to time in interviews, and he's kind of fun, personable guy. But – for him to sort of use the press at this point, it was pretty interesting, pretty bold. We don't want this to detract from the race. And you compare this to the NBA, John, I don't remember NBA guys like fighting in a, well, I guess Farah and Gabriel Lassie weren't actually fighting each other, but I sure feel like they were, but I don't know. I guess Conor McGregor went at, went after a bus, but that's, you know, you expect that that's MMA. That's not NBA or running, but this whole thing is pretty crazy because supposedly the, the fight, according to the article on, on Let's Run right now, came about because this is what Sisei Teskei says, is that he, he thought 
Farah accused him of copying his workouts. And Sisei says, no, I was getting the workouts I was giving my wife off of YouTube. I mean, if this thing was an April Fool's joke, we said, hey, there was a fight. All this stuff was stolen. Gabriel Slassie trashed Farah. No one would have believed this. It's just totally nuts. Yeah, the the special workout thing, I think that was the phrase that Sean Engel used in his article. It's just like he was doing special exercises and he got upset because he was copying. Like, I don't know about you guys. When I go to a gym and start doing sit-ups and if someone else starts doing sit-ups next to me, I don't really get upset, but that's just me. So if we have a pay-per-view brawl, the London Marathon is what time in the U.S., John, on Sunday? 5 a.m. 5 a.m. East Coast, so 2 a.m. West Coast. If we have a pay-per-view brawl at that time between Gabriel Selassie and Farah, or we have the London Marathon free over the air, which do you think more people will wake up for and watch? London Marathon. <laughs> what? In America? No way. Distance fans, we said there's a brawl between these two famous distance runners? Uh, oh, I guess. Okay. I don't know. I, I really like watching Kipchoge, but... Yeah, you could you could maybe watch the brawl and it would be over by the second half of time, second half of London. Also, this is just such a ridiculous situation; it would never happen. But now that I think about it, yeah, so that's something. Like if you ever if you told NBA fans LeBron James and Michael Jordan are going to fight each other during you know the first quarter of the NBA Finals, fans would watch that as opposed to the basketball game. I think. And also, sort of when we did the introductions of these guys, it made me revisit the goat status. Farah's got two time. You know, double golds. Gabriel Slossi only has two Olympic golds, period. You, you start – the public at large really values Olympic medals, even though, you know, you could really be good just for four years. Farah doesn't have the records, but you sort of – I think the farther you get away from him, the more you just sort of look at credentials. But right now, the, the two contenders for the GOAT are, I don't know, not getting the type of publicity you want. But Farah's got to run a race on Sunday. Let's turn to that race. Let's, I think we should start with a men's race because we're already talking about Moafara. I mean, the big question now becomes, is this a distraction for Sunday? But the men's race, the, it's being billed as Moafara versus Haile Excuse me. Whoa. I wish Haile Gabriel Selassie was running. But Elie Kipchoge, the world's greatest marathoner. But it's much more than that because you've got Kipchoge versus the top five in the world last year in the Let's Run.com rankings. But I think anytime Kipchoge races, it's really a matter of, you know, when's he going to lose? Because he's he hasn't lost since his marathon debut. No, it's since his second marathon, September 2013 in Berlin, where it took a world record from Wilson Kipsang to beat him. And to me, I've talked to Kipchoge, I talked to his agent, Valentine Trow, I talked to his coach, Patrick Sang. None of them seem to see any sort of decline in him. The big thing that both Valentine and Patrick told me two of the guys who know him best of anyone is they don't even think it's so much physical because physically we just saw him run 201.39 last fall. It's more mentally. They say if, if he starts to decline, if he doesn't want it as much anymore, if he's not loving every second of training and living his monastic lifestyle and Captagat, that's when he's going to start to slip. And right now we haven't seen any signs of that. He still loves the grind. He still loves coming to these races putting on a performance. He doesn't run for himself. He runs to inspire other people. And he didn't, the most inspirational thing he's done was break the world record last fall. And he couldn't help but continue to be inspired after hearing all these people tell him 
they were inspired by him. He got messages from around the world. So yes, his training sounds like it's been going as good as usual. He says he's in around the same shape as Berlin. So that's what Patrick saying in Valentine trial told me. So I would expect, I see no reason to bet against Kipchoge. This guy wins every race he enters. He, he never has a bad day at the office. He never has any sort of injury or cramps or fueling issues. I think it's silly to bet against him, but everyone has to start declining at some point. Maybe it happens on Sunday, but I wouldn't bet on it. The crazy thing is we just figure age has to catch up to him, but Kipchoge is 34 years old. Mo Farah is 36. And I guess I'm more confident or in Farah's age than in Kipchoge. Kipchoge could be a couple years older, but he's not that much older because we know he's been competing since 2003. It's more likely that actually... I would say far to clients than Kipchoge and the motivation is definitely there. I think that's the key for any of these athletes. You know, we're seeing athletes in all sports compete to their, you know, into their forties and, and running. I think it's a little bit harder because there's not a skill component. So you can't, there's nothing you can do with skill to make up for a declining body and running. I mean, once your skills are gone, once your endurance is gone, that's it. But nothing, these guys are rewriting what older bodies can do because we've seen no sign of, of decline from Kachoge. I mean, his best mar- last marathon was his best marathon ever. And the assumption just comes, oh, he's, he's got to slow down at some point. But I don't know. I think we've been saying that for two years. And then after this one, I think it's easy for him to keep motivated because then the, all of a sudden the Olympics aren't that far off. So in 2020. So it's going to be crazy. But I guess looking at the rest of the field is – Far the guy you think who is the guy most likely to win this thing. So, you know, in the let's run rankings, we had Shura Katata. He was number two last year. He was second in London, second in New York. So he didn't win anything, but he got beat by an amazing 205 performance in New York and uh, obviously got beat by Kipchoge last year in London. And then Mosinet Garamu, he ran 204 flat in Dubai, second in Chicago. Tafara. So Farah beat him there. And then her number five was Lul Gebreslassi, no relation to Hailey. He was second in Dubai, 204. He ran 204 twice and first in Valencia, 204-31. So those were our top five last year. Of those four other guys, who do you see most likely challenging? I guess it's Farah, but not by a lot. Just because Farah, he did win Chicago. I think he's still improving in the marathon. You could say the same thing about Shura Katata, though. I think it's probably between those two. I mean, remember, Shura Katata beat Farah by over a minute in London last year. And he did get beat in New York, but it was only by two seconds. And he ran very aggressively in that race. So he's a big-time talent. And he, he was the last man standing with Kipchoge last year. So it's probably him or Farah. I think they're pretty close to even. Garamu and Gebreslasi... You know, Garamu wasn't that far behind Farah in Chicago, only 13 seconds. Gebreslasi ran – he ran 204 twice last year, only Kipchoge and one other man did that. But you have to remember those that was in Dubai and Valencia. Those are two very fast courses. So you don't know how much you trust those 204s versus some other courses. I would probably say Katadar or Farah, the two guys with the best shot to knock off Kipchoge. All right, John. I was going to talk about – couple other guys who weren't in our top five who were in this field. I mean, this field is so sick. Tamara Tova, he won Dubai 2017, Silver at Worlds. Daniel Winjuru, he won this race two years ago in London. I mean, that's crazy, a past London Marathon champ. 
Abraham Kiptum, half marathon world record, record holder. But John, we have a special guest joining us via we need we need a name for our hotline. Anyway, let's run com co-founder Robert Johnson. He's volunteering with the Red Cross today or something, but here he is. Robert, welcome to the podcast. What an honor, what an honor to be a featured guest along with my later in the show, my former athlete stage candidate. It's a great honor. You're right, Will, and I've saved several lives today installing smoke detectors here in Elkridge, Maryland. But um, I'm thinking about hopping on a plane. John will not place bets for me. He says it's against the international gambling rules. I'm excited for the men's race. Well, I figured you'd start off talking about the brawl between pretending the brawl is between Hailey and Farah, even though it wasn't, but it, it sounds better that way. <laughs> Pretty amazing stuff. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I guess something was a little was lost when the married athlete. I mean, I guess you guys have probably been talking about this. I assumed that meant a woman and there was something sexual in nature. So I found out this morning that wasn't the case. But one of the things that's fascinating to me was, um, you know, I got a, a, an email from a source, a, uh, uh, Ethiopia that doesn't want to be uh, identified, but they, I was explaining to me, I'm like, well, why would Hiley mention the word married athlete? And he's like, oh, because the guy was beaten, basically, is what he said, like he was beaten up in front of his wife. That would be embarrassing. So it's a very sort of still male dominated culture to lose a fight in front of your wife would be <laughs> particularly insulting. So, so many things that are really fascinating. I'm not sure how it's going to all end up. Yeah, I mean, both these guys are under a buck twenty-five. But yeah, if you got your ass whooped in front of your wife, it'd be embarrassing. But what a crazy incident! But you're very confident, it sounds like, in loading up a truck, putting all the money on Kipchoge. It just seems like as a as a smart bet. I mean, what I say, the odds were fifty-eight percent of the time. If he if he wins more than that, you make money. That just seems like too good to to to, to give up. And you know, we put. Has John figured out what the limits are of these betting shops? Uh, I say we, we get $10,000 over there. And how much would we make on that? Well, then would we make like six grand or am I making that up? Four grand? Something like that. And then we can put like another one or $2,000 on the 25 to one shots that I liked in, in our betting preview. I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, you never know what's going to happen in a marathon. I mean, one of the things when I was writing that betting preview for let's run.com scared me was, I mean, how did Daniel Wanjura win this meet, this race two years ago at a 205 PR? Like, I don't even remember how that happened. Like, was anyone even talking about him? Was that just a total, total shock? No, he was good. He was the Amsterdam champion, I believe. But he that was one huge, huge thing about the 2017 London Marathon was Elliot Kipchoge was not running. This was when Bekele got second. Everyone thought Bekele was back after 2016 when he got third in London. Then he got second and everyone got excited. Then he won Berlin in 2016. So Bekele was actually in good form and got second. But Daniel Wanjiru, quality runner at the time, not a total surprise, maybe a minor upset. But Wanjiru since then, last year didn't go so well for him. He was only eighth in London defending his title and then only fifth in New York last fall. Doesn't seem like a serious top, top contender to win the race, but he's in the mix. We haven't talked about the betting odds in particular yet, but let's go there right now. As the article on Let's Run shows, Mofar is three to one to win. So that means he's 25% to win this race, which is sounds, okay, maybe he could win this race 25% of the time, but Kipchoge's won 10 of 11 marathons. 
including London, all the time. And he's at eight to eleven odds. That means fifty-seven point nine percent of the time. So, which is which is pretty nuts if you think about it. There's obviously going to be a British bias, but yeah, I, I don't I don't agree that you said maybe Ferrick can win this twenty-five percent of the time. No. I think Kipchoge wins this race 75% of the time. And then if he doesn't win, I would say Ferris like maybe, maybe the equivalent of like two or three of these other guys with an equal chance of winning. So I would say if Kipchoge wins 75% of the time, there's 25% of the time, you know, divide that evenly between three or four people. I would say Ferris chances of winning this race are like five or 6%, which is like, you know, 20, you know, one out of 20 times, which, I think his odds last year were way up there like that. I don't remember if we could find him. I know he mentioned that last year he was getting huge odds, but he, he wins Chicago and all of, sudden, all of a sudden people think he's ready to win, win a, a 202 race. And one thing that's interesting to me is, is this, I mean, I do think that we, I was wondering if psychologically, if this thing with Holly Gabasasi could impact him. And I think a lot of people are going to say, if he doesn't run well, oh, that did impact him. Um, but uh, John and I were talking about this offline yesterday. I don't think it's going to impact him. You think it would, but these are professional athletes. They're very focused. And a couple of years ago, um, heading into one of the USA meets, there was a huge furor about the Nike Oregon project and the doping allegations about Alberto Salazar. John remembers the year, and it did not impact their performance at all. So if you're in shape, you're in shape. If you're not, you're not. So it should be interesting to see how it all plays out on, on Sunday. I agree totally with Robert with his whole assessment there. 75% is probably what I would say for Kipchoge's odds to win the race. And Farah, no, not noticed, not humongously better than any of the other guys on the field. So that's probably sounds about right, around 5% chance, maybe 7% chance of winning the race. And yeah, that was 2015 USA's Galen Rupp. They just, that was when the ProPublica BBC story broke. There's a lot of scrutiny. Rupp. Showed up, crushed everyone's dreams in the 10K, made the team in the 5K, didn't win, but ran well. Didn't seem to affect him at all. He just had more people around him in the mix zone than usual. Yeah, winning a U.S. championship, though, is a little bit easier than winning the London Marathon. But in terms of the betting odds, I think we're in agreement. I mean, Robert, I wonder how much money actually gets bet on London. If you bet that much money, it really might change the odds. But James Holzhauer... He would get as much money as he could, and he would bet at, at Mofara. I'm uh, excuse me, Eli Kipchoge in these odds. He's the Jeopardy guy, the sports betting guru. <laughs> this is a huge opportunity for people who are inclined to do such things, which is legal to do in Britain. So, all of our British visitors have fun this weekend. And if you do place a bet, hey, tweet out, send us the bet tickets. Just kind of cool. You know what happens in other sports. So we'd like to see who you guys are backing. But Robert, I'm not sure how much time you got with us. We haven't talked about the women's race. Is there anything else you want to get to quickly? I know you're just out sneaking well, out for lunch. Yeah, I mean, on the men's race, just one more thing. It's all about the odds and the value. I mean, Moses McGarrett and Lelo Gepper Celestia, whatever his name is, I mean, they've run 204-5, 204-02, and you're getting them a 25-1. to 1. You're getting fair at like 4-1. to 1. So if one wins, I mean, it's just such a different value. So, but yeah, in terms of the women's race, this is what I want y'all to really talk about. I'm fascinated by this. We sent John there, and I think he's, he's had interviews with Huddle and Sisson. We haven't put him up on the website yet. I really want to know, does he have a sense who is – who's going to be who there? And, and, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I call it a grudge match, but the training partners. Do you think that one of them is superior to the other in, in training? Do you think Ray Tracy knows who's going to win? 
or is it sort of up in the air? Um, I mean, that to me really fascinates me. And obviously, who's going to win the race overall? Um, I mean, to me, I, I, again, I, my betting odds, I think Mary Katani's a, a good bet there. Um, but I'm a little bit worried because she didn't do a half marathon prep. So those are my questions for the women's race, guys. I think I'm going to sign off. Um, we have a limited lunch break here at the volunteer effort that I'm doing. Supposed to be eating like free, like, you know, healthy foods that they have from the Red Cross. Instead, I've, I've found a Wendy's and I really want my Wendy's. So I'll be signing off. The 444 is tremendous. I think Wendy should be the official fast food of let'srun.com. Del Taco with the French fries. But all right, guys, have fun. John, answer those questions for me. And um, John, John is safe. I've hired an Ethiopian journalist today. His rates were quite high. I, was, I did the math. I was like, oh, I'll just fire John and, and hire this Ethiopian guy because it's so much cheaper over there. But I multiplied his daily rate times 365. And, you know, John's willing to work every, every, every day of the year. So, John, you're still an economic value. You're beating the Ethiopians. Congratulations. Good to know. Thanks, Robert. All right. Thank you, Robert. So, John, I think we should turn to the women's race. We can kind of maybe finish up with predictions at the end. But the women's race is just as loaded as the men's race. Maybe more so because I think more so for sure historically, right? Yeah. Because you have the top five in the world. But we were saying this is the greatest women's marathon field ever assembled. And that was before Chernish Dababa pulled out. But Dababa wasn't even in our top five last year in the world. But you've got, what, four of the five fastest ever, I think, in this race. For, well, no, no, no. That was that was the case before. Now it's five of the top ten ever, I believe, or four of the top ten. It's it's a it's still a very stacked lineup, but there were some fast runs in Dubai earlier this year. But add two minutes, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the inflation on Dubai. But yeah, before the before last year, I think only five women in history had ever broken two nineteen, and. Now we've got four women who have broken 219 who are running London on Sunday. Chief among them, Mary Katani, the 2017 champion, the 2011 champion, the 2012 champion. She's run the, won this race three times. And she has the fastest PR of all of them at 217.01. She would be probably the prohibitive favorite. She's won seven of her 14 career marathons. All of them have been majors, so that's really an impressive win rate, especially when you consider she runs London almost every year, and London is the most stacked marathon on earth. So she's probably she's the best best bet, according to Robert. She didn't seem totally confident. I spoke to her today at the press event. She said she didn't run a half marathon like she usually does. She's only she's run London six times, and. Only once has she failed to run a half marathon in her build-up, and that was before her worst London marathon in 2016 when she got ninth. She didn't fall in that race, but she also just didn't run very well. And she said the reason why she didn't run a half marathon in this build-up is because she closed so hard in New York. Remember, she ran that brilliant 66-58 second half in New York over the Central Park Hills and won that race handily by over three minutes. But she said it really took a lot out of her. She knew she was going to need extra time to recover. She didn't really want to rush herself to get in shape to run a fast half in Dubai, sorry, at RAK at the start of February. So she just decided she would ignore it and keep training. I asked her how her fitness compares to last year and the year before that. She sort of hedged. She didn't say she wouldn't commit to being in excellent shape, but she said she's going to contend for the win. So make what you will out of that. But she wasn't super. I, 
I don't know. I, I didn't get the sense like, oh, go bet everything you can on Mary Katani. But she did say she's going to approach it more se- sensibly this year. She admits she made a mistake last year going out in 67-16. They were chasing Paula Radcliffe's world record. They had male paces. They will not have male paces this year. The opening split for the half marathon is probably going to be about 68-30, which is still very, very fast, but reasonable given her PR is 217-01. So that's the scoop on Katani from London. Interesting that she or just didn't sound that confident because usually I feel like most athletes sort of keep the cards close to their chest. They don't tell us what's going on. Maybe we're reading too much into it, but you got to go with what they tell you. Because otherwise, she's my prohibitive favorite, even though Vivian Chariot beat her here last year. But Mary went out too fast. And Mary just destroyed Vivian in New York last year. Not destroyed, but... No, she destroyed her. She beat her by three minutes. Oh, well, I take it back. Total destruction. Um, that I mean, that second half in New York was just nuts last year. It, I figured, oh, she like... I'm like, oh, she, so she ran ha- fast the second half. How much can you actually beat somebody by? I didn't <laughs> completely forgot it was over three minutes. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing about Vivian, though, is I also spoke to her. She is the reigning champion. And I spoke to her manager slash coach, Ricky Sims. And they said Chariot was not even close to 100% in New York last year. She had a hamstring issue and she missed a ton of time. She was basically only running two or three times a week for over a month in her preparation. She ran the Great North, Half, Great North Half in September last year. And then ever since that, she just was really struggling in training. They were very seriously considering pulling the plug where he said he had written an email ready to go to the race to tell her, tell him that she was withdrawing. She decided not to withdraw. She went into the race. She said she was only thinking, she looked at the field, looked at the people in it. She was thinking to herself, I'll probably get eighth place. That's about what I think I can do based on this training. Cause they really tried to cram everything into the two final weeks before the race, when she was able to start running more seriously again, she ended up getting second. So even though she got smoked by Katani in that race, they viewed that as Ricky and Vivian viewed that as a huge success for her. And they said this time around her training has been better than it was before London last year when she won in 218.31. She's been running faster in her mile repeats. She's been running more volume Everything seems to be going well. She ran a half marathon in Lisbon, ran 66 minutes in that race in March. But Ricky also told me that he thought she could run faster because she didn't really start pushing until the end of the race. So they're very, very confident. Obviously, there's a lot of talented women. So just because Vivian's in monster shape doesn't mean that she's going to win. But she's the defending champion in really, really good shape. She's going to be tough to beat on Sunday. Yeah, it's an interesting story about New York. I didn't realize she was that close to dropping out. I think some of it shows maybe, I don't know, the lack of depth at some of these races that she could still win it. Or maybe it shows the class and talent of Vivian. Cause I don't know. I mean, like Jared Ward said he was thought about dropping out of New York last year and he ended up being first American. So you can, you can, if your engine's pretty big and you can get to the line with some training, some people perform much better under, under those circumstances than others. But she, her and Katani, I mean, it's hard to say that just sort of the class of the field because you've got all these other 218 women in the field. But, I mean, I think they are just because of their, their track and shorter distance credentials. But, yeah. I don't know. I mean, Bridget Koskai has been on fire. 218.35 to win Chicago last year. 
Claire Toronto set the course record in Berlin last fall. She ran faster than any of these women in 2018. So she's she's been good as well. I mean, it's just it's nuts how stacked these fields are and how London gets them all because and it's all appearance funny because the the prize money in New York in uh, Boston, excuse me, is bigger, hundred fifty thousand for the win, and I think that's bigger than any of the other world marathon majors. Whereas London, the winning prize. John, do you know it offhand? I think it's only 55,000 or something like that. Off the top of my head, that's the number I thought. I was going to go with 60, so I think we're close enough. Um, but it's sort of nuts. So you're giving up $90,000 right off the bat, but that shows with prize money bonuses. I think it's a it's sort of problem with the sport, um, but people – Trust this. These these runners aren't showing up in London for free. They're not showing up just for the prestige. No, this happened. I asked Dave Bedford a few years ago, how do you get good fields year after year? How is it consistently the best? And he's like, look, we have a big sponsorship budget. Money talks, and they do a good job. The recruitment team does a good job getting these athletes. Some of them sign multi-year contracts, so they're showing up year after year. But they pay them a lot of money. Wow. This is an article from last year. <laughs> 12th place London Marathon, $1,000. First place, $55,000. So, Nailed it. Yep. So that means the money's down because I swear at one year it was $60,000, which is crazy. $1,000 for 12th in like a really tough race. Second place, thirty grand. Oh, my gosh. I mean, like you can barely make the cut in a PGA Tour event and you get thirty grand. Yeah, watch, looking at PGA Tour money, the prize money at like the Masters just gets me depressed. Like the guy who gets third place in the Masters makes more than basically everyone in the entire sport except for like two or three people at a sport of track and field. And that's for one tournament. Hey, but now now that, um, you know, we, we've got the MMA and boxing fans coming to the sport to cover it, there'll probably be a lot of pay-per-view stuff. This really, really could take off. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, to get back to the women though, like you said, Brie Cosguy, she smoked some really, really good runners at the Houston half marathon and at the Bahrain night half marathon. She said, I asked her about running. She said she wants to run a PR. And then I said, well, do you think you can run 217? Cause a PR is 218. She said, yeah, 217. That's not difficult. It'll be easy for me, which I thought, I mean, clearly she is in good shape, but 217 is still really hard. Only four women have ever done that. Uh, five women, sorry. Um, again, those two women did it in Dubai earlier this year. But I don't know, 217, you still got to be, you have got to have some things go right. I know she could do it, but just taking it for granted like that kind of surprised me. Yeah, that's kind of crazy because one, she's never done it. I mean, I don't know, maybe just the success at some of the shorter stuff's just given her the confidence and she's looking at the marathon differently than we used to. I think we used to, a lot of people put sort of 220. That was the magical barrier. And Paula, the crazy thing is Paula Radcliffe ran 215.25. And that was now over 15 years ago. Yeah, almost 16 years. That's absolutely nuts. But that was viewed as untouchable. So like 218s were really good. But, you know, now we're seeing 217 back in everyone's wheelhouse or not everyone's wheelhouse. So if you start thinking, okay, 2.16 is a fabulous time, it's just kind of nuts. But I don't know. if, if I guess 
if you're already a 218 marathoner and she what 65.50 in her two half 65 for both of her halves as you said you know you're ready to you're ready to go and you got to think okay i can run much faster than this i agree i mean she like you said i think the last two years in particular people are starting to realize what's capable in the women's marathon because like you said we got ruth chepengedich and what nesh together both ran 217 in dubai we had a slew of 218s last year if you look at Berlin, Chicago, and London, all three of those races were won in 218. So this field on paper is is stacked. And if the thing goes, if the race goes out fast and if it's good conditions, you know, they got this, they're on they're supposed to go out on 6830, and that's 217 flat pace. So you would think a 217 is probably what it's going to take to win this race, but it also depends. People blow up. Sometimes someone gets over really excited and goes out too hard. There's supposed to be a headwind, so or well, there's supposed to be a wind. It will be a headwind for part of the race. So who knows how that will affect it? But it people have been raising the bar in the women's marathon, and these are the best women's marathoners in the world. Are all running this race? So you would think one or two of them, maybe three, which has never happened in one race, would be capable of running two seventeen or faster. And speaking of best marathoners, we have possibly two of the best. Well, we know we have one of the Americans best marathoners in Molly Huddle and the anticipated debut of Emily Sisson is here. And I joked that Emily should not run this marathon because the anticipation of the debut is better than anything you do after it. But I almost want to argue that she's America's top marathoner and she's never run one. And this is after Jordan say just got third at Boston. But I think the upside for Sisson is that good. I think she, I wouldn't be shocked if she beats Huddle tomorrow and runs a time that makes you think like, wow, maybe she's the number one in America right now. But Hase is a natural born marathoner. And the question I guess we'll find out this weekend is, is Emily Sisson the natural born marathoner? So John, you're there in London and you did talk to them last night. I did not hear how that went, but before you get to that, John, I want to get on the record. I hope you're enjoying your little European sojourn. Uh, My wife's two best friends live in London, two of them. Like separate people, Americans, and yet somehow you're in London and I'm here. But hopefully you can give us some inside scoop. Maybe Robert trusted you just to actually talk to athletes, and I would be out there on vacation. But yeah, what did Sisson? What did Huddle say? Yeah, well, that's been great. I've been living it up here in London, barely walking. That's no, just—it's not serious. I was up till two a.m. Going to soccer match. When's your soccer match? Uh, Saturday. There's no press events or anything so i'm going to brighton versus newcastle on saturday but no i was up till 2 a.m last night writing an article so i'm making the most of my time or trying to so anyway did talk to molly huddle and emily sisson and i also talked talked to ray tracy on monday and had a good conversation he coaches both of those women and both of them seem to be in almost the same shape i would say we saw them run the stanford invite 10,000 where they ran together for almost the entire race before Sisson dropped huddle late, but both of them broke 31 minutes in that race. So it was an impressive effort. And I asked Ray who would win between the two of them. Who's fitter. He said, well, you have to wait to see him on Sunday uh, in an Irish accent. I can't do an Irish accent. And then I asked huddle and she said, she said that she thought, Emily was probably a little fitter than she was at that point, which I thought was interesting. 
And then Sisson said, it was hard to say they're about the same. The thing is they are, people call them training partners. They're not really training partners anymore. They're coached by the same person, but they only did one real workout in this build up together. And that was on Tuesday. And that was just because they were both in London together and both needed to do a workout. There was a five mile tempo. It wasn't anything serious. Interesting. So they, you know, the idea that they're training partners is that's, they used to be, they don't really train together anymore, but they do get along well. They have a good relationship. And I think they're both very happy that they have each other to run with because the plan right now is for them to go out in 71 minutes for the first half and then see how they hold up. Both of them feel pretty confident they can make it through halfway in that pace. Then we'll see how they hang on the second half. But I don't think there's going to be an official pace group at that at that pace, there's going to be one for the leaders at 68.30, and then I don't know what there is for the second or third packs, but probably nothing right at that number. So they, Molly is no stranger to running from the front. Emily's done this on the roads as well. So I think they'll be okay, but they're glad that they have each other to work with, at least for the first half. So there, there'll be a – you said second and third pack there might be pacers. I assume they're the second pack, or are you saying they're even – they're not – I I don't know. I they I was asking them, and they didn't seem to think that there was going to be one. I think there might be there could be one at seventy minutes for the first half because there are some two twenty two nineteen women in the field who may not want to go with two eighteen with uh, sixty eight thirty, and then I would guess there's probably another one maybe for the British women that's slower than what Molly and Emily are trying to run. But they didn't seem to be counting on having a, a rabbit for a 71 minute pace for the first half. Well, it's pretty crazy. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven women in the field under actually six women under 220. And then you have one, two, three more women under 222. So I don't know uh, if Huddle and Sisson could run with some of them, I think it would be good. Wow, Huddle's PR, you know, looks really weak on here, 226. That's just crazy, John, when you think about it. I mean, sure, that was on a difficult course, but it's conceivable. Her PR is conceivably 10 minutes slower than what somebody might run this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it is conceivable. And Molly, Molly kind of knows that she is capable of running faster than that. Her build up has gone a lot better than it had, did before New York. And remember, New York was also slow through the first half. They came in just under 76 minutes for the first half of that race. So she did close pretty well. But yeah, the thing with Huddle is she's 34 years old now, and she admits this could be the last chance she gets to really set down a fast time because she's running London. She, I don't think she has plans to do a full marathon. And then next year, ideally, will be the trials and the Olympics. Neither of them project to be fast marathons. And then beyond that, who knows? Race Tracy seems to think that she'll hold up pretty well. She's hasn't shown many signs of decline, especially with her you know long endurance. So he thinks she could keep going beyond 2020 and keep running marathons, but who knows? She might return to Boston. She might do New York. She, those are the two big American marathons and then Chicago as well. That's the one that she could maybe do, but she'd be 36 at that point. So who knows exactly what she's going to do from here, but she knows she's running London on Sunday. She's trying to run a fast time. She said, I think anywhere in the low two twenties, so maybe two twenty two to two twenty four is sort of the area she's, hoping to run. If you look at some, what some of these other women run, have run, you know, Shalane Franigan's run 221. Amy Craig's run 221 in Tokyo last year. Jordan Assay's run 220. I think 220 might be on, be beyond Molly's reach, but 
222 is certainly feasible with someone with her PRs, 223, maybe even 221 if she has a good day. So I think she's probably in that range. I'm wondering if some of this sort of renaissance in American women's running, if it's going to be a temporary thing or a permanent thing, right? Is the, is the rest of the world going to get closer to Radcliffe and we're going to stay at the 220-222 range? Or are the American women going to be able to go with them? Because I don't know. I mean, like really the sort of Kenyan and Ethiopian fast times that you saw for the men, that was lagging behind for the women. And I feel like now it's really catching up. Women's half marathon, women's marathoning. It's just at a whole nother level. And I think you really need to be close to that two, really under the 220, be able to run under 220 in a flat course to be super competitive. Um, and I think, you know, Jordan say right course could do that now. So it'll be interesting for sure what happens. And also the fact that they don't train together did, did that just sort of evolve, John? Or you said, you know, they're friendly, but uh, rivalry, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess the difference, some of the women, you know, you can train with a man if you need to from time to time, if you want someone to train. So it's easier to find someone. Whereas a lot of top men, if you need a training partner, you got to train with another top man. So it's sort of interesting. I thought you said that, you know, they don't, their buildups were pretty much independent this year. Yeah. Well, the thing about that is, one, this was Emily's first build-up. So I think Ray really wanted to make sure that he was giving her the workouts that would be best for her, that would introduce her to it gradually. That He, he just wanted to make sure he was individualizing each woman's build-up and not just throwing them in a session together because it's convenient. So that was one thing. The other thing is Emily was doing longer sessions. I think she, she excels more in the tempo work and the longer stuff, not on the track. Whereas Molly really likes to grind stuff out on the track. So that's another sort of area where they don't totally overlap. And then both of their husbands are good runners in their own right. Kurt Benninger for Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson has her husband, Shane Quinn. And I don't know how much Shane runs with Emily. I would assume he probably helps her a bit. But I know Kurt helps run with Molly or will be on the bike with her. And so they have people who help them through the sessions. But, yeah, Ray just wanted to make sure that he was doing the best thing to prepare them for the marathon. And that meant that they're not always running workouts together. They do get together for easy runs today sometimes, though, and they still get along very well. It's just they don't need to work out every day. Should be a great one. And I don't know, I'm excited because I feel like with – Des Linden getting a bit older, Shilling Flanagan having knee surgery. Some of this renaissance in American women could sort of fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have Jordan Hase, but Molly's getting up there in age as well, too. So I hope it really goes well for Emily on Sunday because everything indicates her, indicates that she'll be a great marathoner. But with the marathon, until you do it, you never know what's going to happen. And I think her picking London was a smart bet. It's just a little easier. I mean, I guess you could get s- stuck in no woman's land, but you, in New York or Boston, you could be really fit. And let's say you're, you're just not ready for the hills or you respond poorly to the course, then that could throw off your confidence for the marathon, that sort of thing. So I'm glad to see her in London. Yeah, well, the other funny thing, I asked her why she chose London and she was like, well... I don't want to do this totally alone. I want to make sure she, I think she might've considered Boston because there are some other Americans, but she's essentially like, I just asked Molly, what spring marathon are you doing? And she's like, she told us she was doing London. So she's like, all right, I'll just do London with you. That'll, that'll go well. Cause now if she was doing it, she was doing London without Molly and she was trying to run 71 flat for the first half alone. 
I think that's a whole different situation. I think she's really she's capable of running a time like two twenty two, but that's daunting to do in your first marathon to go out and run it alone. Now she's got Molly together and seems pretty confident that she can do it and maybe even drop her late in the race. Did you talk to them together? No, separately. We should have them on the podcast, John. All right, John, the other thing I saw from this shocked me from boots on the ground yesterday. I guess you talked to Caleb Hawkins and I was just shocked. There's some talk of him running 207 and I don't think of any Brits running 207 except for Mo Farah. And I guess he's had a, you know, a lot of success, but I, I, it's a very bold claim for him to say he wants to run 207. I, I tend to believe him though. I mean, so he's very, he's a good marathon. He got ninth in the Olympics in 2016. He got fourth at Worlds the next year in London in 210.17. So 210 in a championship summer marathon for fourth place, just one outside a medal. That's very good. And he was way ahead in the Commonwealth Games marathon last year before his body just gave out in the heat and he wound up collapsing. He's run 60 flat in the half marathon, so that's exceptional for a, for a British athlete. And he was telling me about some of his workouts. Now, okay, his half marathon in this buildup did not go particularly well. He ran Lisbon, and he just said that he went into it kind of feeling that he had done a lot of training. He felt loaded was the word he said. He only ran 62-52 and got 23rd place in that race. He said it was a little windy on that day as well. But his training has just been phenomenal. He's been saying he's been setting PRs in practice for the workouts he runs. He ran one workout as a 16-mile tempo run or you know, a marathon pace, and he came through the half. That, oh, he split for the half there, 63.07. And then there was another workout, 4 by 5 k with a 1K float in between. He averaged that. Well, his slowest rep for that workout was 14.45, and then he ran a 14-mile workout and split 62.17 for the half in that one. So he's been just posting some phenomenal times. He's been training in Mallorca. Before that, he was spending some time in Flagstaff. But he went to Mallorca, I think, just because he said it's really nice. There's a lot of areas to run there because there's a lot of bike paths and apparently a lot of bikers train there. And also, he's just getting a little bit accustomed to the heat and humidity. I think that's something – I don't think he views that as a total Achilles heel. I mean, the conditions were really brutal in the Gold Coast when he passed out, but something to work on. So, anyway, he's coming in. He's like, look – going through in 6330 that's the plan and from there i mean he didn't say he was like trying to hold just hold on he didn't worry too much about slowing down he said i'm either gonna hold on or i'm gonna get faster and so he's shooting really big but he his workouts sound i mean i can't has have you ever heard of someone running 62 17 for half marathon in practice usually these guys just train at altitude and they're not running you know that hard well, sorry, they're running hard, but it's the paces aren't the same. I've never heard of anyone run that fast in practice. Hey, all these Kenyan guys aren't necessarily putting GPSs on everything. But you're right, it's at altitude and dirt, so it, the absolute time may not be that fast. And I'm kind of shocked he went to Mallorca. It's just a little island. I mean, it must be bigger than I thought, but a little island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Do you know who he's been training with? Is he doing this by himself? I mean, flag, you got a lot of people to run with, but it's sort of – it's not the traditional path going to flag is, but but for sure, but not going to train on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. 
Yeah, his dad is his coach. Who's he's been coaching him since he was nine. Uh, though Callum did spend two years at Butler. He basically Butler University in Indianapolis. And he said, uh, "Yeah, I just enjoyed the college lifestyle too much. He, he was partying, wasn't paying attention to school. His grades were terrible. And then he had to go have knee surgery, so he just left after his sophomore year. But he finished top third year NCAA cross in a, as a sophomore. So he was very good, but just figured he would go back to Scotland. And yeah, now his dad coaches him." I think seemed to be the only person he was training with. I don't know, and you know, in Flagstaff when he was there for a month, I'm sure he had some people to run with. But how come all the Americans who are getting top thirty across the sophomores aren't running two hundred sevens, John? Well, they don't go right to the marathon, and they're not as good as Callum Hawkins. I know. I don't know. I was just sort of shocked when I saw that, but good for him. And he, as you said, he got fourth at Worlds. He is a pretty good runner, but. Until you run the fast times, even if like Meb Kaflescu was winning these tremendous races, you're like, hey, when's he going to run a fast time? And you sort of doubt whether they can do it. But Callum's a whole other level below that. But guys generally aren't going to talk big like that, I feel like, unless they're ready to deliver. But he's British. You know, he's brought in. He probably gets a nice appearance fee, so it's good. I, I would love to know what Sisson and Huddle get to run London compared to, say, a Boston. I mean, Boston, they're American. There's so much press around them. You're getting a lot of publicity, but in London, like I think, John, you were the only people. You're the only American journalist over there or now early, right? Maybe there's a couple others, but you're the only one to talk to him that I know of in person. And they could run really well and get like eighth place. Yeah, it's just not a huge story for uh, the Brits over here, and I think that's generally the consensus. I remember when Shalane Flanagan ran Berlin in 2014; she admitted. Look, I'm passing up. I'm leaving money on the table to go run this race because I want to run a PR. She could have gone to New York or Chicago, got way more money. Didn't do it. Rambo land. She did get a PR out of it. Didn't get the American record, but 221, very impressive PR. So I think the same for Huddle and Sisson. They probably, unless you're like one of the very, very top guys, like maybe, maybe Galen Rupp gets a decent appearance fee. He'd still get more in Boston, I imagine. But you know, Kelly Canucci, he was the guy. He ran London a few times, and he was one of the very, very best in the world. He was a world record holder. That is, I think you have to be that kind of talent or one of the top guys in the world to make it make financial sense to choose London over Boston as an American. Yep. Well, I think we've dissected this race left and right, and for those who want to explore the ultramarathon, as Robert and I show our ignorance, we have that Sage Candidate whole like over an, like i think almost an hour and a half with him so we don't want to keep to, going too long on london let's do some predictions and then wrap up with a couple other things and then we'll get to the interview with sage so maybe i'll go first men's race come on i can't <laughs> bet against Iliad kipchoge if i was in london and could put a few quid on is that proper terminology john a few quid on yeah. kipchoge i definitely would I made money back in the day, 2002, betting on London. Paula Radcliffe, her marathon debut. I was over there for physiotherapy. That's when I first met Paula. And without that, I wouldn't have gotten to pace her at Chicago for her first world record. Uh, this is 2000, yeah, two actually. She was regarded as like the lucky loser in Britain. And I saw her odds for the marathon. I was like, oh, she's going to win this thing. I think she was like three to one and she won it. But this time it's the reverse. The Brits are way too bullish on Mo Farah. Any betting man's got to take those odds, of, you know, 50-something percent for Kipchoge. I think you you go there. Uh, for the women, John, thanks to you. I'm, I, I'm a Mary Katani fan until she loses. She's my little Kipchoge. 
on the woman's side, but you've, you've made enough, cast enough doubt in my mind. So I'm going to go Vivian Chariot for the win. And Emily Sisson, first, first, first um, American. What time? What time does she run? I want something bolder. Come on. I don't want some 222 stuff. 220. What do, what do you say they think they're going out in, John? 71 flat. Oh, yeah, good. Okay. I wanted like 220 something, but I, you don't. You don't get there off that, I don't feel like. So I'm going to go 220. 220? 71? No, 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 no. Yeah, 221.30. 221.34. All right. Yeah, Elliot Kipchoge, men's race. Next question. Uh, women's race. I I really don't know. I, I don't think I want to pick Katani. I think it's between Chariot and... Bring a cause guy with for me. I'm going to go with cause guy. She's just been running the casualness with which she said she was going to run 217 and her half marathon results. She's just been blowing people away. I'm going to take her for the win. I also agree, sis and top American. I'll say 222.15. I'm excited for these races. Yeah, they should be great. Um, and next week, you know, I feel like we can get into some other stuff. This was so London focused. But with the Gabriel Selassie and Farah stuff, I mean, it's just pretty crazy. There was a lot to talk about. But real quickly, I think we have to mention, right, Michael Norman opening up in 43, 45 over 100 meters? Oh, yeah. Absolutely insane. It's, I mean, that's the fourth fastest ever. He's tied with Jeremy Warner. So Jeremy Warner never ran faster. Not like opener or whatever. Fourth fastest ever. Um, of course, people in Let's Run want to know if he can break 140 for 800. That's the big, the big debate, you know, not whether he'll actually break the world record, um, but they want to know what he could run for 800 meters. Well, I want to know what he can run this, this summer. And well, I guess it's this fall in Doha, him and Van Niekerk. I mean, if Wade Van Niekerk can get back to his 2016 shape, I know that's a lot to ask in his first full year back from knee surgery, but Man, that's going to be a good matchup because Van Niekerk's talked about trying to break 42. It was about trying to break 43 seconds. Norman's talked about trying to break 43 seconds. And if those two can get together and both of them have run 43-0 coming into Doha, I think you could see something really, really special. And, you know, I was thinking, like, you know, perfect way for Van Niekerk to go out of the 400 and start focusing. He wants to focus on the short sprints at some point is to break 42 seconds, break 43 seconds in the 2020 Olympic final. I don't think, I think that's barrier will already have been broken by the time of the Olympic final. Cause Michael Norman, I mean, how, what, what is not to like about this guy last year, 4361 on that rainy track in Eugene to win a CLA's world record indoors as well. In case we forget 4345. I don't think anyone saw that coming and you can't expect him to run that sort of time every single time out in the diamond league, but he's going to run a few diamond leagues and, He's probably going to win him and run them really fast. So it'll be interesting to see if Van Niekerk raises him at all before Worlds. My guess is not because that's not how this sport works, but I can't wait to see them. I want to see what Van Niekerk's capable of too. Yeah, Van Niekerk's world record, 43.03. It's just, we've got a lot of great young sprinters. I mean, the real question there is how does he come back from the injury? And I think this year he may not, he may, he may not be there. But even if he's not, you got, you know, Noah Lyles, we have Christian Coleman. There's a lot of bright things looking up for 2020, 2024, and even 2028 Olympics in America. I think it's going to be a golden opportunity for track and field in America with, with 
really these men, these three sort of young American stars. And, you know, Norman and Wiles, I think, will always be linked because they sort of first burst onto the scene at the Olympic trials in 2016 as high schoolers. But, wow. I guess the, the only question for me, really, okay, I guess end of the year, Michael Norman, is he the world champ and is he the world record holder? Yes to the first and yes to the second. I think at 43-45, I mean, I don't know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but he made that look so easy. He just turned it on that last 100 and totally dropped Ry Benjamin, who's also a stud. If he's running 43-45 in April, what can he do the rest of the year? you got to think. This, this guy, and maybe I'm just getting overexcited because we haven't seen him struggle at all yet, and eventually he will struggle at some point. But 43-45, he just looks so good. There's really not anything not to like. He's in his prime. Yeah, I think he could do it. I mean, it's pretty sick. I'm trying to look and see what he – well, I mean, last year he was running 45 flat indoors. 44-52 at NCAs. He opened 45 flat indoors last year, John. Gosh. I want to go no to the world record, yes to the world champion. It'll be interesting how he... The one thing that'll be actually really interesting for him this year, right, is world is so much later. It's the end of September, first week of October, right? I mean, I keep thinking it's like a month before that, but it's not. It's uh, World championships are in October. Like, just get that in your head. He's never done a really, you know, last year, his last... 400 meters. I guess he didn't run a 400 after NCAs. He ran a couple 200s, you know, very well. Um, he won in Paris and was second in Lausanne. But, you know, how is he going to be doing in September and October? So, I, you know, he he could easily fizzle out by then. And, you know, maybe Van Niekerk has more time. It, it could be a benefit that the world are so late for him. But pretty crazy stuff. Uh, at Mount Sac, my... One of my favorite track meets in the world. Used to be a great place to run the 10,000. Still is. I sent my 10,000 PR there. You did too. Wow. Actually, my PR no longer is there, but I loved Mount Sac. Also, first time under 30 minutes. So, special track for me, though it no longer exists. I mean, back in the day, people used to contemplate going to pin relays to run fast. We've got pin relays this weekend, Drake relays this weekend. You know, the college track and field season is really kind of in its crescendo or it's, it's ramping up here. And then we soon, before we know it, end of the month, Doha diamond league. Start of the, start of the month. Yeah. That's May 3rd, but we're still in April, but May 3rd. Wow. Next weekend. Earliest start ever to a diamond league meet season with the latest world championships. I had no idea it was next weekend. I've been getting the press releases and I'm like, I'm not going to pay attention to this yet. I've been talking to people in London and, They've been saying, oh, yeah, you going to any Diamond League meets this year? And I'm thinking, like, Diamond League? That's so far away. Why are you talking about that? It's like, yeah, I'll be in Doha next week. I'm like, what? So, yeah. Speaking of Doha, John, the Asian championships are going on right now. Packed crowds. Packed. Yeah. Can't, can't find a – can't buy a ticket. Actually, I wouldn't even know how. But, it's, it's, I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of embarrassing. But at the same time, like, if you had NACACs, the NACAC championships at, like – the Rose Bowl or something. No one would show up to that in the United States either. The difference is the Rose Bowl isn't hosting the World Championships in four months or in five months. So worrying, but it's the prep event for the World Championship because the Diamond League meets held at a different stadium, or at least it was in the past. I think this year yeah, they're holding it there uh, before Worlds, but usually it's not there. This year it's going to be in the big stadium. Yeah, yeah. I thought I knew there was some debate that they might hold it there, so that'll be good. But 
so far, no, uh, we haven't heard of any like snafus out of the Asian championships, but there's just nobody there in terms of attendance. But Hey, you know, you gotta be a hardcore track and field fan to go to some of that, but that's the problem. There aren't any hardcore track and field fans in Doha. It sounds like at the diamond league meet every year, the best fans are the import workers from Ethiopia who go crazy. We'll see next week though. The world will see this, what, what sort of attendance, what, what, what happens, what the track's like, um, but it's kind of interesting. It's so early. Maybe they just wanted to have it right after the Asian championships, just, you know, use the meat for a couple track meets, then they can go to back to using it, whatever they use it for. And then we'll come back in. I, I don't even know how many months that is. May, June, July, August, five, five full months. Yeah. <laughs> so we're five months away from the world championships. The other, there were a couple other huge things this weekend, Texas tech and Nigeria's divine, Oduduru, a 995-1976 double, both win legal. Very impressive. But, um, I don't know, more impressive, Ryan Krauser with the longest shot put since 1990. He threw 2274 at 74 feet, 7 inches. Um, I mean, that's nuts. The crazy thing is, John, that's still a foot under the world record. Randy Barnes, 75-10. Yeah, well, the world record. I mean, we need to scrap those. Can we just scrap? They talk about scrapping world records before a certain date, but I don't know. I think there'd be a better way to do that. I don't know. Maybe if like a bunch of journalists voted and like ninety percent said get rid of the record, we would get rid of it. That would be kind of scandalous, but we we all know that the guys ahead of him on that all time list of dopers. So it's kind of unfortunate. Maybe a a rule could be if you're convicted for doping. You can never, you don't get a world record, even if you eventually break it, right? Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to that. And Randy Barnes, the world record holder, has been banned for doping. Yeah, so that would be fair for me. Okay, these old records, if you ever were convicted for doping before or after, the record's gone. And that's objective, get rid of it. But come on, I mean, he was a doper, so that record shouldn't be on the books. Some shot put talk in our London Marathon podcast. Don't say we don't talk about throwing. All right, throwing, fighting. We're, 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 we're you know, we got to be a little more manly. I'm sure that's a stereotype, but you know, fighting, shot putting, doping. Hey, men. Well, I'll say it. Men, men are the. They fight more in the world. They murder more in the world. Like, let's let's not sugarcoat this, John. Fighting is not a good thing. I agree. The testosterone in the males a lot of times does not lead to a good thing. But oh man. If Highway had some security cameras in the weight room or wherever this fight took place at his hotel, it'd be great to see 125-pound Mofar going at it versus this other guy. Sounds like a very minor squabble described as a brawl, but sounds like a very minor brawl, which is good. But, John, I think that does it for today. We've got Sage Canada helping us as for the next five weeks. Hoka will be helping us at Let'sRun.com learn we get to do whatever we want, but they're sponsoring this, essentially paying for this. It's great. They're sponsoring the site and helping us explore the ultra marathon. So we've got an hour and a half with Sage Candidate up next. But John, I will be getting up for sure for the second half of the races. Some of you guys, it's very tough. If, you, if you're worried about waking up for London, hey, the f- marathon does not start until mile 20. But you want to wake up about halfway. So wake up halfway if you want to get an extra hour of sleep. And watch from then. But I'm jealous, John. You're in London. 
Have a great London Marathon, and we'll be back next week to talk about it. Stage Canada next. All right, everyone, for the next month, actually five weeks on Let'sRun.com, we're going to be exploring, thanks to Hoka Oneone, what are the best ultra marathons in the world. And we'll probably be exposing some of our ignorance because we at Let'sRun.com do not know much about the ultra marathoning world, but Hoka came to us, proposed this idea. We said, yeah, that's great. And they've pretty much given us carte blanche to do whatever we want. So we decided to start with a friend of Let's Run.com, Sage Candidate, to help us guide the discussion. We're going to be having a lot of user input on this. We want your submissions on Let's Run.com. You can win great Hoka prizes. We'll have more on that. But Robert, how about you introduce Sage Candidate? Well, I will, but I need to make a correction first. I think you're not giving us enough credit. You said they came up with the idea. I think we came up with the idea and they agreed with it. But maybe I'm wrong. I always like to take credit for like inventing the name Let's Run.com. Weldon says he did it, but I like to, to take credit. But yeah, Weldon's right. We don't know a lot. Of, we like to say we know distance running, but we don't know the ultra scene. And the ultra scene in recent years has started to fascinate me because it reminds me of like running for maybe 30 or 40 years ago. It seems like there's sort of more surprises in it. You don't know everything about it. Seems more interesting to me, but maybe that's just because I don't know enough about it. But to learn more about it, we have brought my former athlete at Cornell, the man who has his own Wikipedia page, the man who is 14 times more popular than Let's Run.com. He has 143,000 YouTube subscribers. Sage Candidate. Sage, guys, he ran for me at Cornell. He was a modest high school recruit from Oregon, 846, 3000, 13th in the state meet. He ran against Galen Rupp. Of course, Galen won that state meet. But uh, he really over exceeded expectations at Cornell. He was the 2007 HEPS Ivy League runner-up in cross-country, qualified for NCAA Nationals that year, was 83rd in, in, at the NCAA cross-country meet. 2008, he was on fire. He won the Ivy League 10,000 meters and was also the youngest person at the 2008 Olympic marathon trials. So Sage, welcome to the program. Please help educate us. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Great to catch up with you guys. Was that applause, Weldon? Was that, that was right? supposed to be applause. Oh, very good. But yeah, so anyways, while in college, we let Sage run a marathon and he qualified. He actually ran, how many marathons did you run in college? Three before we were done, right, Sage? Uh, no, it was two. I qual- I tried in Houston right after, right before indoor track and I missed by 22 seconds. The standard was 222 back then. So I ran 222-22 at Houston in my debut then I did track season. Uh, I think I got fifth at HEPS in the 10K that year. We ran a tactical race. I think Zach Hine got second. Uh, it was like a 30-40 10K. And then f- five weeks after that, I ran the Grandma's Marathon, ran 221-43 and qualified. Then uh, the deal was that fall, I wouldn't run in the Olympic trials because I was doing cross country that year. So I, I did the first 10K at the Olympic trials in New York City, 2007. And then it was in between HEPS and regionals. So I was running for the team cross country. So I only did two marathons in college as an undergrad. Well, then I did th- then I did the New York the year after actually. The year after. So you yeah. forgot. He had a red shirt. I year. forgot. What's it was such a bad marathon. I forgot. <laughs> but anyways, since uh, graduating, Sage joined the Hanson Brooks program. He's written a book about that experience. And then after he made another Olympic trials in the marathon, which would have been 2012. And then really since then, he's been in the trail ultra scene. And Sage, I mean, I'm really impressed. I found your Wikipedia page. Again, it says that you've won the USATF 100K Trail Championships, the Speed Goat 50K, 
Lake Sonoma, 50 miler, all course records in all three of those races. Cayuga Trails, 50 miler in Ithaca. The Tarawera Ultra Marathon in New Zealand. The Pikes Peak Ascent, the North Face Endurance Challenge. I mean, it seems like you've done it all. Like, for the record, I did not write that Wikipedia page either. I know people have accused me. I have not touched that Wikipedia page. I know who started it, but uh, I did not write it. It wasn't my idea. Well, folks, uh, he is the son of Clifton and Pamela Ando Kennedy. Sage, did they write it for you? or No, my parents did not write it either. It was, uh, it's, it was actually an Ivy League st- uh, student athlete who wrote it. Not, it didn't go to Cornell. I, I loved it. Uh, and... Um... It's great that you have your own Wikipedia page. So, Sage, as well as said, we're going to try to come up with the list of the best ultras. And it might be actually easier for us to do it because, like, if you asked me to do the best marathons in the world, that would be – it would be hard for me to do a list one through ten. I might not want to do that because you're going to anger some marathons. But, you know, if if I don't have a connection to the sport like I do the marathoning, it might be easier to anger some people a little bit. But is there – I, I guess the way I want to start, and, and Weldon, if you don't like this idea, I, I guess let's start at the top. I mean, when, when I, we came up with this list, and we're going to rank them. Honestly, the thing that popped in my head was, okay, comrades, or is it comrades? Which is the proper pronunciation? Uh, comrades. Okay, good. So comrades in Western states are what popped into my mind as the two most prestigious, and the, mainly because those are the two that I had heard of before I started Let's Run. I, mean, I remember Alberto Salazar winning comrades when I was in high school, I think. And then everyone's heard of Western states, but is there a race that sort of jumps out as a numero uno? Like if you were talking about marathons, I would definitely say for, you know, what's the most prestigious race to win, obviously with the Olympics, but you know, ignoring that the London marathon, I think any true marathon fan would say London is the hardest for a pro to win um, and most prestigious to win. Is there a race that jumps out you? Like when we tell you we're going to be ranking these races, yes, something needs to be put up at number one. Everybody would agree with that. It would be comrades. Not everyone would agree with that, but it's it's by far the most competitive. It's got the longest history, and it's got the biggest field size by far. Over 24,000 runners this year, 94-year history, most prize money purse. Um, I, I, I'd say it's hands above the rest in competition. And uh, But a lot of people from North America haven't heard about it, so there's that. You just said that because you're running it this year, right? No, I'd say that anyway. <laughs> I, I have run it before too, and I am running it this year. But uh, I think if you just go by the quantitative data, just those facts that there's 24,000 runners doing it, whereas Western states, there's less than 400 runners. Plus, Western states is hard to get into. Comrades, if you're good, you could get in. Uh, you know, same thing with like UTMB. If you're good, you could get in. Uh, Western states is a little harder to get into. Other races are really hard to get into. So, and the, the limit the field size. If there's only a couple hundred guys in the race, how competitive can it be? versus 24,000 guys with a prize money purse of $38,000 to win. Well, but I mean, look at Boston this year, the elite field. I mean, they limited, there's 20, 30,000 people in the race, but they limit the elites to only 70 people. So if you have all the elites, it doesn't matter if you have 400 or 40,000 behind them. Right. I mean, but you're saying some of these races, well, they limit like the top person in the world could say, I want to run Western States. And they might say, no, the top person in the world would have to qualify for Western States, and uh, there's a couple ways to do that. You either have to run a special golden ticket race, which there's only four in the spring, and they're all in the U.S., and you have to finish top two in that race to get a golden ticket to qualify for Western States. Or you get selected in a sort of uh, biased way by the Ultra Trail World Tour Committee to maybe get a spot at Western States. Otherwise, if you're fast and you want to run Western States, 
you can't run Western states. You won't get in. You could wait on the lottery, but that might take five years. Interesting. There's an ultra tour tour. Uh, there's a lot of series. So there's a lot of series. There's a uh, yeah. There's the Ultra Trail World Tour, which is international races. There's uh, the Golden Ticket Series, which is just the U.S. races that you could use to qualify for Western states. Um, and there's other s- series like Sky Running and uh, Golden Trail. Um, we could get into that in a bit, but because I know one of the things is ranking maybe uh, like the Grand Slam uh, of ultra running too. That's another series. <laughs> You have a Grand Slam of races, or there's a series of races called the Grand Slam. There is a there is a name called the Grand Slam, and I think it's starting to not be as popular. They were a series of hundred mile races all in the U.S., uh, like Leadville, Western States, Vermont, uh, Wasatch 100, and you do four of these races all in the same summer. So you do 400 miles all in the summer. They call that the Grand Slam of ultra running course it's it's kind of it helps you get into leadville maybe if you say oh i'm doing the grand slam i'm doing this whole series but it's not as popular now and not very many people really do it it is impressive though you do 400s in in a summer it's really demanding on your body it's probably a bad idea i think this just sort of shows the difference in the ultra world there's just such variety of i mean i guess in, in the marathoning world there's races all over the world but here you have different distances, you know, how you qualify for the races is different. Whereas, you know, most top marathons, if you're fast and you try to get in the race, they'll let you in, or it's pretty clear cut. And then also on top of it, it's very well established what people want to win, right? The Olympics is number one. There's no question. Everybody wants to win the Olympics. And then after that on track or something, it's world championships. Marathon's a little bit different. The world championships probably isn't as prestigious, but it's, you know, the world marathon majors. And then you sort of go from there, but it's, in marathoning, it's all established. Twenty six point two. We run over the roads. You know, you know. Sh- some courses are difficult, more difficult than others. But it's it's not like a factor of, you know, the distance doesn't vary by a factor of five or ten. There aren't races. I mean, if you want to get into these some of these really obscure stuff, racing across America, racing around, you know, the thing where they race around the block, and I think it's in Queens. Oh yeah, trend in trend in sentence run. Yeah, you do like a month of running around a block. I think you need to win that one stage. Oh, I don't know. That's too that's too far for me. Uh, too much of a time commitment. The F- Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, Long Trail records, those may be in the future, but not for a long time. Yeah, and then you've got stuff like, I feel like Barclays gets a ton of press now because, and I don't know, like, let's talk about Barclays real quickly. Is that more of a gimmick, obscure thing you can't get in? It's just sort of kind of cool? Or... Is it too obscure? Like, I don't know, like only how many guys get in that race anyway? 20 or something? Uh, I think maybe it's more than 20. It's less than 100. It's very obscure. I call it a scavenger hunt in the woods uh, because it's this this impossible loop. You're not even running most of the time. It's off trail. You're route finding. You have to find these pages of a book that are hidden in the woods. You're in, in Tennessee in the in the brambles, there's all these brambles. It gets muddy. It's rainy. It's cold. A lot of people are are hiking. It's it's a scavenger hunt, uh, basically. It's very hard because you have to cover a hundred miles off trail, but and the weather's very bad, and you have time limits, so people don't finish. But that's the whole draw of the event is that it's this race that's become impossible to finish. But they really do limit the field size. I know some very good runners uh, that would have had a chance maybe to finish that got rejected because the application process is, is very, uh, secretive. Uh, I don't even know how to get in. It's kind of like one of those secret society clubs 
that if you know certain people, maybe you could get in. Uh, and it's been, I think it's been blown out of proportion by the media, by people on YouTube. Uh, people like to write articles about it because it's so extreme, but it's not really a competitive race. And, you know, if you want something hard or difficult, you could say any race is hard or difficult. Running a low two hour marathon is very hard and difficult. Running a 10K on the track fast is hard and difficult. It's not that it's harder per se, because it's a extreme course. It's just, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of variables at play. Um, but I think it's, it's been totally blown out of proportion. So I guess I, one of the things I want to do in this, before this five weeks are over is try to come up with like the equivalent of the triple crown or maybe a quadruple crown of, of running, you know, something that like, if you won all these races, you know, kind of like the grand slam in tennis or the triple crown in horse racing, if you won all these races, it it would be sort of the pinnacle of one's career, particularly if you could do it in one year. Um, so it sounds like Barkley shouldn't be on there. Cause I was thinking that's not knowing much about it. I'm like, Oh yeah, Barkley's dude, that thing is so cool. Um, but uh, states, let me take like a, a, a step back just and take a broader view in the sense of, I mean, we gave you like, you know, like a 10 minute overview yesterday of what we were going to do. And we briefly talked about things. You sent me an email and, you know, I was talking about the triple crown and quadruple crown. One thing I was thinking about is the different surfaces. I mean, you really have, you have the, you have races that are on the road, like comrades, you have races that are on the track. I mean, they'll do like, right. Like, Oh yeah. 400 meters on a track. Yeah. Or one mile loop in a park. Yep. Um, but then you have mountain races and, um, you also have like, you know, the trail races. So does any, are there any athletes, like, is there something that you specialize in Sage or, uh, or are there athletes that could win everything that could win a mountain race, that could win a trail race, that could win a road race. And that could maybe win, um, you know, a, a track race. Like do you specialize on surface or type of race or how does that work? Well, my hashtag motto has always been any surface, any distance, but of course I've kind of failed at a lot. So I'm kind of just mediocre at all these different things, but you know, I've been lucky to be able to do races like comrades. I've done uh, world mountain running champs. I've done UTMB. I've done Western States. I've done some really technical mountain races in Europe. So I've seen the different surfaces and I'd say right now, no single runner could totally dominate on these surfaces, especially on the guy's side. There's some women that have better versatility, I think. Uh, part of it's because there's not quite as many women in the sport, but there's some really phenomenal uh, runners that have run pretty fast road marathons that could do really good technical trail running. They usually don't do the 100 milers, though. So if you're talking about doing a, a 50K versus 100 miles in the mountains, it's different. If you're talking about doing 100K on the roads versus, uh, you know, it, uh, comrades, sometimes it could be different. But I, it's hard to dominate every surface at these different distances. It would be hard to win comrades and UTMB. If someone did that, that would be very impressive. In the history, there has been people that have run really well at comrades and then won Western States. Uh, a woman from the US, Ann Trayson, did both within two or three weeks of each other. She won comrades and then won Western States a couple weeks later, which is one of the most impressive doubles probably in ultra running history. Uh, but comrades in western states are more runnable and fast-paced races especially comrades on a downhill year because western states is a net downhill race so uh but to win comrades and then utmb that's something really mountainous would be really hard and if you know killian jornet the best mountain runner in the world tries to run a road marathon he's never going to do it uh but if he did I, I don't know how fast he could run i don't think he could compete at comrades 
Uh, he just, he says he doesn't even like running on the pavement for more than six or 10 miles at a time. So UTMB, how far of a race is that? It's just over a hundred miles. It's 105 miles, 106 miles, depending on the course, uh, and 33,000 feet of climbing. You start at night or you start in the evening. So you have to run all night. So you're running up and down these big mountains through Italy, through Switzerland, running all night. Uh, you get extreme temperature changes. You get the night running, you get snow and rain, you get sometimes muddy trails, but it is, it's not a technical race. They're, they're pretty smooth trails. There's a lot of double track, but they're so steep that you have to power hike a lot. You're walking, you're using trekking poles. 80% of the field probably uses trekking poles. You have to carry a five pound pack with required gear. Uh, well, most people's pack weighs about five pounds because you have to carry a rain jacket, rain pants. You have to carry your phone. You have to carry all your, your phone. Your, you have to carry a phone. Oh yeah. That's required in a lot of European mountain races. This is uh, just, I'm blown away. I'm trying to get away from my phone. And now they're telling me if I join a mountain race, I got, is it a satellite phone? Like, do you get reception at the top of the Swiss Alps there? It's a, it's a safety thing. They think for selfies, right? Uh, well, there you could do that too. I'm I'm not stopping and taking a selfie, but uh, during a race, but uh, you know they have a tracker on it. Wait, Sage, can we put like a GoPro in your head and, and live <laughs> as you race your next? Too heavy. It's too heavy. <laughs> I carry in a GoPro in some races, maybe, but I not if I'm serious. Uh, it's still too heavy. You need you'd rather carry five extra gels because that's going to help you more. So, how is a phone a safety? device if there's no reception well for example i well that's the problem is there's no reception sometimes but uh they say that there is spotty reception it's not too isolated so the first year i did utmb i fell and i had to get stitches and i cut my knee open on a rock and so i i did pull out my phone uh and tried to make a call so my parents knew not to drive to the next aid, aid station in switzerland uh but I was able to contact, I think, the race director, and they they actually flew me out off the mountain with a helicopter. Yeah, I was about to say, Sage, isn't this the race you were helicoptered out? Now, is that, do they make yeah. you pay for that? Is it kind of embarrassing, or is it like a badge of honor to be airlifted out? It was, it was more embarrassing, but uh, it was a cool helicopter ride, and it was about 200 euros. I asked how much it would cost before they, they did it. I was basically stranded on this mountain. My knee was ballooned up swollen it was extremely painful i was worried about injuring myself permanently so i said you know what i have to stop i can't really walk downhill anymore can you give me a ride downhill and they're like there's no cars there's no roads up here there's no way off the mountain you either roll down or you get a helicopter and i was like how much would a helicopter cost and they're like oh 200 euros and i was like okay bring in the helicopter i'd been up all night i was sleep deprived i was in a lot of pain i was 60 miles into the race uh so got the helicopter ride didn't finish the race it was embarrassing. I got stitches. It was, it was a bad fall. So have you been, this is UTMB. Have you been back? Is this? Yeah, I went back uh, a couple years later and I had a horrible race and I got, I finished 50th place. I just was out of it from, from the start. I was walking most of the last 40 miles. I just, I don't know. I just didn't have it. I wasn't in shape. Uh, I have no excuses. I just, I sucked it up. I've always sucked it up at hundred mile races. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the training. So wait, wait, wait. Before the training, I want to ask big picture racing things. Like, what's the longest race you've done, or the longest you've run? And also, like, what would you say your best accomplishment is in ultra running and also marathon regular running? Or I don't know if it's fair to call it regular running. Yeah. Um. So the longest race was that UTMB when I I suffered to the finish. I didn't really want to finish, but I was like, I'm going to finish. It's embarrassing. I got 
couple, I think two or three women passed me in the last 20 miles. Uh, I ran 26 hours there. So 26 hours, 105 miles. That's the longest I've ever been out there on the course. It was a lot of walking though. Uh, it was embarrassing. And uh, proudest accomplishment though in ultra running was probably winning the North Face 50 mile endurance challenge in San Francisco. Uh, it's the biggest prize purse up until that point. It was the biggest prize purse you could win in a trail ultra in the US, $10,000. Uh, it's usually one of the most competitive 50 mile trail races that there is in the whole world. Uh, so I won that in 2014 and then regular running road marathon running really proud of, uh, qualifying for the Olympic trials under Rojo's coaching running 22143 uh, when I was 21 years old and then also getting 16th place at Boston, the Boston marathon in 2015. Pretty proud of that. I missed the Olympic trials standard by 12 seconds, but there was a little bit of a headwind that day. Damn headwind. The North face 50, is that a race that's every year? Well, it, it was actually canceled last year because of the the smoke from the wildfires. But yeah, traditionally, it's been every year uh, in December. They moved it to November some years, but it's it's sponsored by North Face. It's in Marin Headlands, right across from the Golden Gate Bridge. They've changed the course over the years too, but it's usually about 50 miles with 10,000 feet of climbing, smooth dirt, single track trails, $10,000 to first place. Uh, it's usually a loaded field. You get some international guys. You get a lot of top Americans. It, they've been advertising it for years. When I was running at Hanson's Brooks back in 2011, 2010, I saw ads for it. And I said, you know what, guys? I want to do this race. It's $10,000 to win. 50 miles, I could do it. Uh, so it took me a couple of tries, though, to, to win it. Again, big picture here. You know, Most marathoners do two marathons a year. I think some of the Africans do three. For these trail ultras, is it similar? You're gonna you're gonna pick about two big races a year, or three, or h- how many? Like, like what's your schedule like for this year? La- what'd you do last year? What's your schedule like for this year? Explain how the average person would do that. Uh well, I'm probably not a good example. Uh, it depends on the runner and it depends on the race. So, uh, usually, if you're a pro sponsored runner and you want to do really well in a couple hundreds, maybe you do one. You focus on one or two hundred milers for the year and you focus on the big ones. So if you're an American guy, you want to focus on the big ones, you're going to do Western States. Then maybe you're going to do UTMB. Maybe you do another hundred like run rabbit run, which is $12,000 to win. So, you know, that's lucrative. Uh, so you're focusing on maybe a couple hundreds, but you want to build up to those hundreds. So maybe you do uh, a couple hundred Ks or you do a 50 mile race early on in the season. So maybe you've got a 50 mile, hundred K, a couple hundreds. So then you're up to four races then maybe at the end of the year, you want to do North Face 50. So you do another 50 miler. So that's five races. So you could easily be doing five or six ultras in a year spread out. Uh, maybe you jump in some some shorter races too. But most ultra runners, I mean, some are serial racers and they do races every couple of weeks. You could do an ultra. I've done some of my seasons. I did an ultra almost every month. I did an ultra 10 months out of the year, one one race a month. But it's not sustainable. I think it's a bad idea. And it started making my performances really inconsistent. So uh, like this year, I'm, the main focus is comrades. Uh, and I, I'm actually going to do more 42K trail races in Europe uh, instead of that many ultras. I'm actually, comrades might be, uh, I, did, I did Moab Red Hot 55K a, couple, a month ago, but I might only do two or three ultras this year and then a lot of 42k trail races. Like last year I did eight marathons. Some trail, some road. So let's let's talk a little about comrades. It's obviously the the 89 years, right? You said it's about about a 55 mile race on the roads of South Africa. Famous people like Alberto Salazar have won it. 
Um, I think you were 15th the year you did it. Is that right? I take out the, the two guys tripped a drug test on the day, though. Two guys who finished ahead of me that year in 2015 tested positive for PEDs. So I like to tell people I, I got 13th, really. But yeah, I was the 15th guy across the line. Well, so yeah, 13th is good. But it, let's is this... I don't know. Is this something that you dream of winning and have a realistic shot of winning? Or is it kind of like you running the Boston Marathon where, you know, a top 10 would be a, a really a career accomplishment type thing and, and top 15 is more more reasonable? You know, like you're a, what, a 216 marathoner. What type of person normally wins that race? And what are your, what are your goals and, and hopes or dreams? Well, it's not like a marathon major. It's not as competitive. So I could definitely get top 10 at Comrades, whereas I probably never would get top 10 at Boston. Uh, maybe last year, if I ran smart and didn't get hypothermia, I could have got top 10 at Boston. But it's way harder to get top 10 at a marathon major for most runners than it would be to run, get top 10 at Boston, especially if you're a 215 or 220 type of marathon guy. Um, so you know, I dream of winning comrades. It's, it's definitely, it would be really, really hard, but I, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, this goal, I'd be thrilled if I got top five. Uh, I ran a pretty bad race in 2015 when I got 13th. So I think I could improve quite a bit on that, but the type of runner that wins it, I mean, you do get these two twelve marathon guys, you get some two Oh eight guys. Sometimes the two fifteen guy wins comrades though, cause it's, it's 6,000 feet of climbing on an uphill year. It's hot. You got a fuel, it's 55 miles, you know, it's, it's almost a six hour race. If you run under 540, you're probably in contention for a, a top three or the win, but it's, you know, it's a long race. <laughs> and and, and are you, is it an up year this year or down? It's an uphill year. So yeah, they switch directions. So do you, it seems like you've done well in the up races. Is that what you prefer? Definitely. I'd never do a downhill race. I, I suck at downhill running. Uh, it's still a lot of downhill though, because it, it undulates a lot. So it's 6,000 feet of climbing and 4,000 feet of downhill. It's all on pavement. It's rolling hills. The first, uh, when I ran it, Max King was doing it. Another Cornell alum, folks, if you're looking at Ivy League. Yeah. He had a, he had a really rough day that year. Uh, he liked, he did much better at the downhill year. He got top 10 the next year on a downhill year. I think he was eighth at Comrades uh, the year after. But we came through the first marathon split, <clears throat> I think in about 238. And it was uh, after like 3,000 feet of climbing. So you're running low six-minute mile pace. Uh, if you want to win, you have to run low six-minute mile pace. The course record's under six-minute mile pace, but it was by that guy who, uh, the the Russian doctor who uh, oh, it was probably, was well, he, I don't, he was, Eddie H told, it, told people that he used to sell him EPO in Albuquerque. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. It's an impossible record. But yeah, comrades, you know, I, I think a 217 guy could still win it. Uh, it's not, it's, you know, Bruce Fordyce won a record number of times. And I don't think his marathon PR was any faster than 217. Sometimes 220 guys win it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know last week was the two oceans race, which used to be sort of viewed as the prep race for comrades, but now has gotten such a beautiful course. I've heard that a lot of people sort of treat that as its own race in its own, but um, there a bunch of Kenyans showed off. They said they were going to beat the course record, blah, blah, blah. And of course they didn't even, you know, I think two of the three dropped out. So it, it is a different game. That was one of the things I was going to ask. So it seems to me like there's, you know, there's obviously no, like if LA Kipchoge is in a men's marathon, your people are pretty confident he's going to win it. It seems to me that in the ultra scene, there's, a, and this is what I, I think is why it could be more, 
it's it's popular to some degree. I always say like in, in regular running, there's no interceptions. There's no fumbles. There's nothing that adds randomness to the results. So the results are pretty predictable. Like we, we can say in a marathon, these are the six women that are likely to win. And we did this in a recent race and they, and they took five of the top six places or something like that. So am I wrong in saying that there's more unpredictability in the ultra scene? And is that because the distance is so long, you never know when someone's going to hit the wall or you never know how someone's going to do on this particular course that they haven't done before, you know, with 4,000 feet of climbing, or is it, mainly because it's just not quite as deep. There aren't as many, much prize money. So you don't have, you know, London will have really like 10 really super good marathoners, whereas the trail races might only have five super good runners. And then if, you know, three or four of them are off their day, then it kind of opens it up to anyone kind of like Boston last year in the marathon, like, or is it a combination of those two factors? How would you describe, like, am I right in saying that it's more unpredictable than a regular race? And why is that? Yeah, you're right. And it's a combination of those factors, I'd say. I mean, if you just look at the sheer duration of the race, because it's it's longer, because it's it's maybe hilly, uh, you're out there running for six hours, eight hours, 20 hours. So the, the more time you're spending on your feet, the more time things could go wrong. The more time you have to get a really bad stomach ache or bonk, the more time you have to get hypothermia or overheat. Uh, so it's just the sheer duration makes it more unpredictable. Then at the same time, you have uh, it's not the competitive depth is not there. Uh, and you've got people that do totally different training that you, you don't know how they're going to do. You don't know how they're going to react. Tactics play a big role because as you know, in the last 10K of a marathon, if you start bonking, you start slowing down a lot. Well, things go exponential in the ultras. If you're bonking and you have 30 miles to go, it could turn into a really bad day. Uh, so, you know, people start running, you're running seven minute mile pace, one mile and the next mile you're walking and you're doing 20 minute mile splits. So like things could change really fast and things go really, really bad. Uh, so it's, it's just a matter of the, the duration though, mainly it's just all the time that you're spending out there. It makes it more unpredictable. Even this year, like at the Boston marathon, right? The woman's winner, the Geffa, she had a big lead. She's winning by almost three minutes at some point. You're still kind of, we're kind of wondering, Oh, Boston Hills, she could get caught. And if the race had been 27 miles, 28 miles, she might have been caught. But if imagine if the race was 50 miles, I mean, yeah, like the thing wouldn't even have started. So much can go wrong. So I think it does. I think the unpredictability is going to be good for the ultras in terms of people who follow them as a sport because, I don't know, people like their stars. They like their Tiger Woods. But, you know, the best golfer in the world still wins less than 50% of the time. Okay, Sage, here's a hypothetical for you. So. Elliot Kipchoge is obviously the greatest marathoner in history. 201.39. I mean, that seems like a misprint. He's in supreme shape. He's got London on Sunday. If I flew over to London, well, Jonathan Gullett's on a plane right now, about to land in London. If I had loaded Jonathan's bag up with a million dollars of cash and had him go to Elliot's hotel room and said, Elliot, you're not going to be running London on Sunday. Here's a million dollars. We're going to have you run the Comrades Marathon in, what, three or four weeks? Could he win it? Would he win it? Or does he need to have, does he, would he need to do specific training? Like, like, could he just train for the marathon and win that thing? Or do you think he would blow up? Like, to me, that would be fascinating to see. First of all, he's, I think he's got six weeks to train from London. No, I don't, I don't want him training though. So I want him, let's say Comrades was this weekend. Let's start with that question. Comrades is on Sunday. And instead of going to London, we say, hey, we're going to put you on a plane tonight and you're going to South Africa. I think. I think he could win. Uh, I don't think it would be a guarantee he'd win. 
but I think he could definitely win because he's head and shoulders above the rest of us in terms of marathon PR. Like, I don't know. I haven't looked at the full comrades field, but I don't think there's a guy faster who's run faster than 208. So I'm a 201 guy versus 208 guys. But then I don't know what's his longest long run been. Has he done a 50K long run? Because uh, you do feel a bit, a little bit different after you get a couple long runs in over 42K. Uh, he could surely win it though on pure talent alone and pure marathon training alone. Yes. But well, Sage, I'm surprised. I would say 55 miles uphill. Well, there's 4,000 feet of downhill too. Yeah. But uh, even worse, I think he doesn't win. He's never, he's only run Chicago. He's never even run like, well, hell he's never run Chicago, but I mean, he's never even done Boston or New York. He's only done flat marathons. Yeah, but he trains on some hills and, uh, you know, his training ground. He's got some rolling hills. And Sage, you need to defend the ultra people more. I, I, I'm with Weldon. Become the old, Robert and I are going to become like the gods of the ultra marathon world because, Sage, you're supposed to say, you guys are the best. Real runners suck. Oops, I just called them real runners. <laughs> Traditional marathoners suck, and you guys are tougher. But uh, it's t- more than twice the distance, Jade, Sage. I'm kind of shocked you said that. Well, it's a road race. It's not like UTMB or something. So there's a big, okay. Is going from, is going. Well, well, I think exactly the same. Go ahead. Well, I know what you're going to ask. This is a question I had pre-prepared for myself and it just came to my head. Wow. So it's like comrades, you know, it's 50, what? 55 miles. About. Yeah. Is that to the marathon? Like a marathon is to half marathon or is it even more? I mean, you could argue it's, it could be four times harder. I mean, like, how does that work? No. They say the marathon doesn't start till 20 miles. So if you go from 26 miles to 35 miles, you know, is it exponential or is it, you make it sound like, oh, 26 miles to 55 miles. It's more than double the distance. To me, that could be, you, you might need five times more training, but you're saying, oh, I think he maybe could win it just doing marathon training because he's so damn good. I think it's, I think it's more in common with the marathon, actually. Uh, it's like, you know, is the 5k really that much different than the 10k? 10k is twice as long. Uh, the energy systems you're using are very similar and so it's more the hills that would make me, that makes it unpredictable. If it was a flat 55 miles, or if it was like the IAU or IAAF World 100K Championships on the road, they usually run a flat road course for 62 miles, uh, then it correlates even better to your marathon time. So I, I would be more confident if he was running 100K flat on the roads. But, you know, the Comrades Hills are, are very runnable. You're still running low six-minute mile pace uphill. He's He would be going so it would be such an easy pace for him. Like I mentioned, we had a pack of 30 guys running through the first marathon. We split 238 with a lot of climbing, but that's a jog for this guy. He's He would be running so sub-maximally that I'd imagine if, as long as he didn't screw up his hydration and fueling, that he, would, he wouldn't even have as much fatigue as a, a 215 marathoner or a 220 guy. But Walden asked the difference between a marathon and a 55 mile race. I always want to know a lot of these races are 50 miles, but when you go from 50 miles to a hundred miles, like what the hell is that like? And mentally, is it like, or do you just break it up like any run? When I used to run like 12 miles, my grandmother, when she was like 90s, I can't imagine waking up every morning thinking I had to run 12 miles. I'm like, well, first of all, running's fun for me. Secondly, like I don't think of that way. I just get to like, if, if I'm tired when I was out in Flagstaff and training, like we would just go out and once you get six miles you're basically done because you're halfway there and you got to go back otherwise you're not going to finish so on a hundred what's a hundred miler like compared to a 50 miler and or do you, do you just break it up in your head and you think oh at a marathon oh i'm a quarter way done is that the same thing as like one mile of a four mile race or is it like hell in your brain 
Uh, a hundred milers is a, a totally different beast. <clears throat> and I could say that cause I failed epically at the few hundreds that I've tried. Uh, but it, it depends if it's on a track or road versus if it's in the mountains, hundred miles at UTMB might take 20 hours. If we run a hundred miles around a track, maybe we could do 11 hours. So that's a totally different race, even though it's both a hundred miles. Uh, so I think part of it's just thinking of the duration, but yeah, you break it down, you take it, you know, 10 miles at a time, five miles at a time, one aid station at a time. And uh, you try not to think about how many miles you have to go, but the 100 milers seem to be a totally different beast. 50 miles, 100K, they usually correlate really well to what it's like training for a marathon, especially if it's a runnable course. But I'd say the biggest difference besides just the sheer time is the terrain that you're running on. So, you know, UTMB mountainous 100 miler is a lot different than uh, a 50K on the roads. Whereas if you're running a hundred miles on a track, like Camille Heron does, it correlates a lot more to a comrades or a, a road ultra 50 K ultra marathon. So let's talk a little about Camille. She's let's run visitor. She's one comrades, right? She's won these track races, but it, it, does she also do well in the, in the trails scene or. Uh, she has not done as well historically on the trail scene. She did win the Tarware 100K or 100 mile in New Zealand, which is not really a, a super technical race. And it, it actually wasn't super deep this year. She's an amazing runner, though. She won Comrades. She set the, the record for 100 miles on a track, 12 hour record, uh, and ran a pretty fast track time for 100 miles. But it, like I said, it, I think it correlates really well with your marathon, just like Comrades correlates really well with a marathon. Now you throw her in a, a mountain race in Europe, a really technical race, and I would guess she hasn't done it yet, but I would guess she does wouldn't do as well. Even a race like Lake Sonoma, 50 miles that has 10,000 feet of climbing. She hasn't done as well in, uh, Western States. She didn't finish last year or two years ago. Uh, so the trail races have been a lot harder and that's why I've always said it's hard to dominate any surface, any distance. You don't get guys winning UTMB and then winning comrades. Uh, it just doesn't happen very often. Now you see a lot of like, some decent marathoners try to show up at comrades or two oceans to try to win that. Is that because those races have more money or is there nice bonuses with your shoe contract? Cause these races are on TV generally in South Africa or how do you make a living Sage? Like, I mean, I know Hoko Oni Oni, I know they sponsor you and that's one actually, I, I would have honestly asked you anyways, cause your friend, you and I are friends, they must sponsor you, but do you, prize money? Is that a big part of your income or do you make money from your YouTube channel? Like how did most, I guess you might not be the average person, but maybe take me through like how the average ultra person makes it and how you make it. Yeah. So it's uh, cobbling together different streams of income. Like you said, the YouTube channel, that's been uh, pretty big with me. I consider that outside business income though. That's not, it's related to running, but it's uh, not how I make money directly with my legs. Whereas with sponsors, you get, you know, maybe a salary contract stipend contract you get uh travel support you start doing well in races you get invited to fly to races you get free lodging hotel so the travel's taken care of then you start getting maybe you have some incentive bonuses so uh you know historically uh sometimes you have you know several thousand dollars thrown in for making the podium or doing well in a race and then some races don't have any prize money but the bonus is worth a lot more anyway so you're going to make a, a lot more money even in a no, no prize money race, like Western States has zero prize money, right? But if you win it, it's, it's worth a lot. Uh, it could be a life-changing career if you win Western States with a sponsorship contract, especially if you're a guy. Um, whereas Comrades has big prize money, 38,000. That's the biggest, uh, but it's not 
it's not a ton. You're making more through your salary. So maybe we should let the the shoe companies decide for us what's important. What we, we, it sounds like we kicked off the show saying comrades, Western States, UTMB are, are three three races that have to be in our our list of the best you know trails and ultras and whatever. What other type of races would be in a standard shoe contract? I think that would be one thing that we could start to look at to help us come up with this. Depends, it depends on the company and what they value. So some companies, some brands value trail mountain running more uh, like a competitor. I'd say Solomon, you know, they sponsor Killian. They sponsor this golden trail series, which I'm doing this year. They're all 42 K races. They're not even ultras, but they're famous mountain races in Europe, mostly And there's a lot of financial incentive to do that. Even if you finish top 10 in the series, you get 5,000 euro, you get a lot of international travel covered. Uh, So they value these mountain races more. They don't even care if it's an ultra or if it's 42K. Whereas other companies, uh, you know, they value the competitiveness. So, you know, what's the most competitive ultra? Well, it's Comrades. What's the next one? I say it's Two Oceans. What's the next one? I say it's IAU 100K World Championships. Then you're looking at UTMB. Then you're looking at maybe North Face 50 Mile. Then you're looking at Western States. Uh, so that's like the, the, some of the order. But it, it depends on the shoe company and what they value, maybe what races they sponsor. It's going to be different. Uh, they might value if you set some some record running across the U.S. more. I don't know. Do you have an agent, Sage? No, I've represented myself. Wow, you, you've gone into the into the rooms with the shoe companies. I've always wondered. <laughs> that's like good for you. Is there a set of like, one other thing I was thinking of other lists, you know, like maybe we could have a, a list of the, you know, the, the 10 a bucket list, you know, for the average amateur runner, what they should run. You know, I mean, I think, you know, like the world marathon majors, I know Dubai isn't one, but we sort of put them in that category, but I don't think most people want to go run Dubai just because it's not that exciting of a course. So we could come up with like the, you know, 10 bucket list items to run. But one thing I was thinking of was like, are there some world records that people are just really respect and in, in, in awe of like a 24 hour run or hundred mile record or run across America record? Like, is there anything that again, just really jumps out at you as like, yes, that's the most, that is sort of the secretariat of world records or something like that. Well, trail running, it's hard to establish records because you got courses that change and then you have different weather conditions depending on the year. Whereas with the the road and track ultra records uh, that are really held with high esteem, I'd say the one that pops out would be uh, this Greek runner, Koros, ran the 24-hour record uh, and no one's touched that. And so his records are always this this thing. Who? How far can you run in 24 hours? I, I don't even know exactly what it is. It's like 170 miles, I think. 169 miles. I could be wrong on that. It's really good. It's really good. I believe his marathon PR was only 223 though. Uh, so that's a really good record. Another really good record I'd say is, uh, the hundred K open road world record 609 for hundred K by the Japanese runner, uh, Kazami. He ran, he's a 217 marathoner only, but he ran 609 for hundred miles or hundred K on the roads. That's a pretty good record. Um, then, of course, the Comrades Uphill course record, which I think is untouchable. But it, again, it was by that. Uh, he was a 210 marathoner, I believe. Uh, the Russian doctor. Lennon shuts off. And, you know, Eddie Halbuck, Eddie Halbuck said he doped. And a bunch of other people came out and said he doped. So, I mean, that's on the record, but never been proven. Yes. Is he the up and down record at Comrades? No, the, the, the down record was, was broken recently, I believe. Yeah. But they've they've changed the course slightly. So it's hard to equate. But that uphill record, I think it's was it like five twenty four. It's ridiculous. 
say you're an uphill runner, but let's say you went, your dreams come true. Your dreams become reality. In two months, you're the 2019 Comrades champion. You're telling me you're not going to go back and defend your title next year. You'll say, Hey guys, I'll be back in two years. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't have that confidence in my downhill running ability. It's, it's a totally different race when they reverse direction. But some people have won both directions. That's why, I, Sage, what do you think about my idea here for like the New York City Marathon? You know, most of the years it's not rabbited. I think maybe they should go every other year. One year it's rabbited, one year it's not. Then it would be like an ultimate badge for a runner like Kipchoge. I mean, I, I was joking with Weldon. I said, look, I know Elliot Kipchoge is amazing, but we know he's the best at winning rabbited flat races. That's what he does time and time again. Now, he did win the Olympic marathon in you know, somewhat warm conditions, but we've never seen him early in a hilly marathon. Or, you know, so I like the variety of things. Like, do you think that would be cool to kind of spice these marathons up a little bit with rabbits some years? And Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It changes the dynamic. Um, but whether it changes you mentally or, or physically or how you train, I mean, could just depend on the weather on the day. I mean, you know how like weather is always a big factor uh, when you're trying to time trial or you're trying to be competitive and it could, it could mess you up, but yeah, it's, it's, it keeps the, it keeps things spicy with the competition for sure. I'm fascinated Sage by some of this prize money stuff. You know, as you were talking, you mentioned run rabbit run. I'd never heard of it. It's up to 15,000 in prize money this year. And so I'm kind of curious, like how does that race have so much prize money? I mean, I get it. How comrades does. It's got 20, you know, tens of thousands of people and it's like a marathon. A lot of people, they put in money. It's on TV in South Africa, that sort of stuff. But this run rabbit run thing. So they've got a decent amount of prize money. It's up to 75,000 total, 15,000 for the winner, but Western States has none. And I don't know, like back in the day, you know, Boston marathons, like we don't have prize money. And then all the other races started having prize money and Boston had to go along with the game. So do you think that'll change in ultra running i'm just kind of curious wow if we sort of start skipping western states or as long as the shoe companies reward it will it be there but i'm, I'm curious if you know how like run rabbit run do they have a lot more runners how do they get all this prize money just sponsors or they don't have a lot of runners i've actually i i started that race and i dropped out uh i didn't finish that race because yeah the prize money is lucrative it's in steamboat springs uh the race director is a really cool guy he donates a lot of the money to charity i believe maybe all of the money from the entry fees to go to charity and no, it's, it's a smaller operation. There's only several hundred runners in it. Uh, but I think he, he's a big fan of the sport, the race director, and he fronts the prize money. Uh, a lot of it, or at least when he started, I think he, he might've fronted a lot of it himself because he wanted to draw, uh, an elite crowd and he wanted to show that it was a, a serious race. Uh, cause it's a relatively new race. I think it's been going on for maybe seven years or eight years. So he has, it has, uh, gotten some, some really good runners there, but, it doesn't have the prestige, prestige and history of a Western states and sponsors generally will reward you uh, very well for doing well at Western states. And I think Western states is like the Boston for, for us ultra running Western states is like the Boston marathon. If you want to compare all the marathons in the U S to the Boston marathon, and then all the ultras in the U S to Western states, that's how Western States falls into place. It's got the history. It's hard to get into. It's got the lottery. It's a bucket list race for a lot of people. And that draw is what keeps the sponsors interested and keeps the incentives there to do well or even get top 10 there uh, to say, oh yeah, I was in, I was in this race, you know, with all these guys. Uh, it, 
that's the pull with with Western states. But it, you know, it's it's kind of fickle how to get into Western. Whereas if you want to do Run Rabbit Run, you could sign up and do it. Interesting. So, Stace, you said L.A. Kipchoge would in comrades, but I think in the fall I was on the message board and. I said, wouldn't a bunch of 204 guys just crush Jim Walmsley? And, and Jim's Walmsley, I forgot what race it was after, but he was like, I think it was on a podcast. Anyway, someone played in my comments and he's like, no, I would love to take L.A. Kipkoji down into a canyon and I would destroy him. So what was he talking about? Do you remember? And and is that sort of a difference? Is, is he talking about something different than what you were talking about? Or how can you guys have such different opinions on that? Uh, I think, well, first of all, I think if you, uh, I didn't, listen to the full uh, podcast recording, but I believe he was talking about the Grand Canyon, which he trains in a lot, uh, being close to Flagstaff, which is uh, quite hilly. It's fairly extreme. If I don't know if you've ever been down to Phantom Ranch or down the, the trail, but you drop like 4,000 feet in like eight miles and then you're climbing back up. And if you run across the canyon and back, it's like 44 miles with 9,000 feet of climbing. So it's, it's pretty extreme. Uh, and you definitely, your legs feel that altitude difference. Your legs feel it when you run in the mountains. If you're used to running flat and fast all the time, there is some transition. So I think uh, it's hard to say, oh yeah, you know, Kipchoge would definitely win comrades. I'd say he could win comrades, but he could not win comrades. Uh, I wouldn't root against him at comrades though. But if he, I said, let's put him in UTMB or let's put him in a mountain race against Killian, then his odds start going down. But then it's in relation to does he have any time to prepare? Does he how many how many weeks does he need to do some hill workouts and to run a couple 50k long runs maybe to be able to be the world's best mountain ultra trail runner? Right? So I think the whole question is how long does that transition take? Some guys naturally may have it and some guys just don't, right? Some guys are are really good half marathon runners and they run 61 minute halves, but then they never they never put together a really fast uh, full marathon. Right. Some guys are just better at the half marathon and 10K than they are at the full marathon. Well, I think some guys are just better at the marathon than they are at 50 miles. Some guys are better uphill runners and mountain runners than they are at downhill runners. Oh, yeah. I think I would have been all right at like a 50 miler, but I would not have been all right on a hilly 50 miler. No way. Oh, God. Anything with the hills, the Johnsons don't want to be going up or down. Yeah. And it's not just the hills. Then there's, then there's the technicality. So there's some technical trails like Killian does really well in these these sky running races or these golden trail series races that I did last summer, uh, where there's class three scrambling, there's rocks and cliffs that if you fall, you'll die. Uh, you're using your hands to pull yourself up. It's not even running. You're, you're climbing up a mountain. Uh, someone's off trail. It's knee deep mud. So then you got the technicality component too. You're not even using the same mechanics of running that you're used to running on a road. It messes with your muscles. So let's talk a little bit about the training. I mean, I, I know you said when you got airlifted out of that, that one race in Europe, you kind of knew you weren't in good shape going into it. How do you generally train for one of these? I mean, you've got the 55 mile coming up in about, would you say, six weeks? So explain to me how the training is different than marathon training and sort of how much are you running? And, and do you have a good idea of your fitness level as you head into Comrades? Or will you know, you know, in, in two or three weeks before the race when you start to taper? It, it's more unpredictable. So <laughs> like, even when you tow the line in a marathon, you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to run 217 or 221 maybe, right? Like it's a, it's a little unpredictable, but you know, with comrades with these runnable ultras, and I say runnable means they don't have an extreme amount of climbing and the trails are pretty smooth. You're running a good clip, you know, comrades, six minute mile pace, other ultras, maybe seven minute mile pace. You're still running. 
it correlates very well to marath- regular marathon training and regular marathon fitness. It's really just a matter of extension with your long runs. So instead of doing a 20 or 22 mile long run, you start doing 28 mile long runs. Maybe you do a 30 mile long run. So, you know, I'm building up to doing a 30 mile type of long run at race pace at low six minute mile pace or faster. And I'm trying to do it with some rolling hills in it, just like comrades. So you, maybe you throw in some more hill repeat workouts. I go up to Magnolia road here above Boulder, run some really, uh, hilly long run routes, but it's, it's general high mileage training, very aerobic training, not as many track intervals. You kind of go out, you don't do any more track intervals. You do hill repeat, high intensity hill repeat workouts. You do long tempo runs. I'm going to do some 12 to 15 mile tempo runs, uh, on rolling hills. And then it's mainly just a lot of easy pace mileage running. Cause you roll out the day, you roll out the door at seven minute mile pace. That could be your race pace for a 50 mile trail race. Uh, so every day you're running race pace, even if you're running seven minute mile pace. So it's a different mindset. I, my sweet spots always been around 120 miles a week. I haven't even been running that much, but I just ran a pretty bad marathon at Rotterdam two weeks ago. I ran 223. So, uh, you know, I know my fitness is, is pretty poor there relative to what I've run in the marathon before, but it's more a matter of extension now and being able to, to hold up, uh, come through that first marathon at comrades and under 240 and feel comfortable and, and back that up with another sub 240 marathon in the second half, hopefully. So it's a matter of extension and it correlates very well to marathon training and fitness, I'd say. Tell us about that Rotterdam race. I mean, you, you said it was disappointing, but did you think you were in shape going in there? Or? I thought I could run closer to 220 and the dream was trying to qualify for my third Olympic trials and run, uh, under 219. But it, you know, it's, it's been a struggle for me. I've only run under 219 twice in my whole career and I've done 15 marathons. So, uh, you know, I knew realistically it was going to be hard. I still, I went out on pace at the half and I was, I could tell I was working too hard. And so I, I crashed and burned pretty hard the last 10 K, but, uh, it's, you know, I needed a qualifier for comrades and it was, it's part of the buildup for comrades anyway. So, uh, you know, I'd love to qualify for my third Olympic trials, but, uh, I'm not sponsored to be a road marathon runner, obviously. Sage, so go to Cal International. Everybody knows it's downhill. That's where you go. Call up John Kellogg. By the way, by the way, as we're doing the podcast, I tried to call John Kellogg. That was my Weldon's coach, my right-hand man at Cornell to ask him about you, but I didn't reach him this morning. He just called me as we're doing the podcast. Oh, good. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do a PS where we talk. Yeah, to John. that'd be great. Sage was always very into running. He's got this YouTube channel, VO2 Max. He would talk shop with John Kellogg off the side of practice for like hours on end or 30 minutes on end and just lots of, of, of training talk. And it was kind of interesting to me because, you know, um, the long distance guy, Sage, like your first two years where we weren't, we had a lot of middle distance talent. Not, we weren't doing very well with the long distance talent. And then all of a sudden, actually, when you kicked it off there with the 10,000 meter victory i think we won the 10k at haps like what three years in a row maybe um but it 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 was kind of interesting to me because sage was really a scientist he always questioned why are we doing this why are we doing that and then it seemed like your senior year sage you totally bought into everything we said it was it was fascinating to me like this is my recollection of like oh my god sage is now like doing everything we say and my belief was you kind of realized that there was two guys younger than you that were maybe a little bit more talented. And you thought, Oh my God, I got to train smarter than them. Now you used to question everything. It was the opposite. You're senior. You just bought into everything. Do you you remember doing that way? Or is that just my record? Well, there are definitely two guys that were faster and and younger than me. Uh, Nate Edelman, who ran like 29 30. He was a sophomore that year 
and he's beating me at, at the Bucknell invite running 29.30 for 10K. And then, of course, Zach Hine, who ran, uh, what, he run like 29.0, 29.10, 29.09 that year. And they were both younger than me. They went 1-2 at the HEPS that year. I finished. I didn't even score at the HEPS that year. Uh, no, I think uh, I was just uh, caught up maybe in, you know, I ran the New York City Maryland that fall. I was caught up in road racing. I was already looking beyond college. But uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was tough competing with those guys and they were, I'd say they're, they're flat out more talented than me. Zach is a, a super hard worker. He's still running, uh, at a high level. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I bought in, I guess I, I, I believed in what you guys were doing always. Like I came to Cornell because of what you guys wrote on let's run with your training philosophy. And I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, thank you. Thank you. Sage. This is a aerobic development I want. And he got me to the Olympic trials in the marathon when I was 21 years old. So, you know, I'm thankful thank for you. that. And I got to nationals. That was always a dream is making nationals and cross country. And then winning conference was really ice, icing on the cake. I would have rather won cross country, uh, HEPs conference, but you know, I, I got second place to Michael Mogg that year. I got out kicked in the last 500 meters. It was still a good race, you know, 2441 at Van Cortland Park. <laughs> Sage, I want you to change your, your Twitter bio. I was thinking about that as I was getting ready for this. I was kind of trying to, you know, compile all the stats. And I obviously remember the HEPS 10K win, but, you know, you were 13th in the state meet in Oregon to get second in HEPS cross country. I mean, screw the 16th in the Boston Marathon. Let's put second in HEPS cross country. Very, very good accomplishment. So, actually, I think Sage taught me a decent amount. I remember one time, I think it was your junior year, maybe in the year you were winning everything. You wanted to do some harder intervals. And it wasn't really what I wanted to do, what we had down for the rest of the team. And I remember talking to John Kellogg. And I'm like, look, yeah, and John was very particular. Like he had a workout. He wanted you to do it. If, if it was like run six miles at 3 a.m., he wanted kids to do it at 3 a.m., even though they wouldn't do it at 3 a.m. So he wanted to do something. And I'm like, okay, my job is to sort of get consensus here. So I asked John, I'm like, look, is this going to hurt him to let him do this? He's like, no. You know, it's like, you know, if you're doing a VO2 max workout, it doesn't matter if it's, a you know, and the way as I've gotten older, the way I would describe it now is like, I used to think there was one way to train. Now I describe it as like, there's several, Sage is a non-eat meter, so I apologize for this analogy, but there's several ways to cook chicken. You can bake it, you can put it in a, in a pan. I mean, you can cook it on the grill. Like, it's basically, as long as you don't screw it up, not going to taste that much differently. You know what I'm saying? There's a bunch of ways to bake a vegetarian Casserole, <laughs> yes. No, Sage, Sage, hey, Sage was always very. We had we had an annual barbecue at the house, actually, maybe twice annual barbecue at the house. Sage was always the nicest guy, he always come by because I always would go out and buy Sage the veggie patties, veggie burgers. And he's like, oh, Thanks for getting that for me, coach. I'm like, Sage, thanks for scoring all the points for me. Oh, I can't take too much credit. I mean, I think with the differences in training, and we could apply this to ultra running, is that you got guys with more fast twitch muscle fibers versus slow twitch, so you, they respond to different workouts differently, and you know, that year that junior year i was uh running with a lot with jimmy weiner who was uh, you know was he, he was a really fast miler right he had way more fast twitch muscle fibers I and mean, when you coach jimmy to 148 800 as a freshman this guy was a you know 409 1600 meter runner and he's still he, he got second at heps the year before to ben true uh so jimmy had the range but he was a totally different runner than i was i'm all slow twitch i'm doing marathons jimmy weiner's got the 800 speed the mile speed the 1500 speed uh, and so we're clashing on these tempo runs. We're clashing. I said, we need to do more mile repeats on the track because I want to run, you know, 445 pace on a track. Whereas like, you know, we need more strength work. We should do three by eight minutes, critical velocity on the golf course. 
And I was like, I already have the strength. I don't need to run on the grass at, at five minute mile pace, tempo pace. I need to run, get the lake turnover. Whereas Jimmy didn't need that lake turnover. So there was kind of this push and pull, I think, with the different athletes on the team. And if you look at it in ultra running, it's like, okay, does this guy who runs a really fast marathon, how well is he going to do at this ultra? Does it always correlate directly? And how should he train for that? Well, some guys are better on the hills. And a lot of it comes about down to genetics, I think. Genetics and being smart with your training and, and fueling. Yeah, Sage, earlier you were talking about talent. And I think in running, a lot of times we equate talent with speed. Like, oh, you're a distance runner. The faster guys are more talented. But, you know, some of your talent might be the ability to persevere, the ability to run long distance. Who knows? Kipchoge might get out there after three minutes and mentally just, like, break down and be weak. I mean, I think for whatever reason, so much times in running we acquaint whatever the distance, like the faster guy at the slightly shorter distance is more talent, talented, but I think that's sort of simplistic way to look at it. And then the other thing is thinking about this is like, should we train towards our strengths or to like cover our weaknesses? And like, obviously if Kipchoge was going to run an ultra or something hilly, he probably should work at his weaknesses, like the things he hasn't done, the hills and that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure for everyone, if that's always the case, if you, if you should try to you know, if you're a fast guy, do you need to work your endurance? Probably so. There's probably, I don't know, like if we did money ball to running, never really thought about it. Like, should you, but obviously if, if strength is your thing, you can't just do speed work all the time and think you're going to get better. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I wanted to say to work more on his strength, even though he was great at it, but you know, he get Salazar and Rupp. I mean, they kind of do a lot of speed work. I'm wondering if, if Jimmy Wine or Sage has, is, is, has a bug in my office because I've literally just received a text. I wrote him and Joe Walsh, who was in Oregon rival of yours i guess they were your year at cornell and jimmy just texted ask sage what he believes is the percentage of fast versus slow twitch muscle body in his body and how that's affected his training philosophy over time no way well i i don't i've never had a muscle biopsy so i i honestly don't know but given my my open 400 prs 57 seconds i'd say i'm i'm pretty pretty slow twitch i also have a horrible vertical jump uh, so I'd say I'm at least 90% slow twitch, if not 90, 95%. And I have a low VO2 max too. And folks, if you're a young runner and Sage, Sage has high schoolers following him on YouTube and stuff. If you're a young runner, be, be, take heart in this. Sage's freshman year at Cornell, he was really quite bad. I mean, they were joking that on this text message throw that I'm on that you were running seven minute tempos. I don't think it was quite that bad. But what did you run your freshman year? I, I was also low on iron and overweight. I was the heaviest I've ever been in my whole life freshman year. Freshman 20 at Cornell is real. I ran, gosh, I think I ran over 30 minutes at, at Army in that first 8K race. So yeah, the tempos were going over six minute mile pace sometimes, I'd say. 540 to six minute mile pace tempo runs, which is pretty bad. Uh, and I, I think I got down to 27.30, 27.20 at, at VCP that year. But I was like the 15th guy on the team. I should have been cut. I should have been cut. We did a time trial, 4K time trial. I think I ran I ran 12.48 in the 4K time trial on the track to start the season. And guys around me were walk-ons. Walk-ons were beating me. There's a big adjustment probably for your diet. You got to go to the cafeteria, your vegetarian. Folks, he wasn't like he was a big partier. The text also says Sage only drank a couple times a year. But he was hysterical when he did. But they said to Sage, you were three beers and you were toast. That's that's not exactly true. I don't know. Very responsible, Sage. After I was 21. <laughs> we have role models here, Clay Sage. We don't want to be talking. Don't be bragging about your exploit. Unless Mickler wants to sponsor Sage. Mickler Beer. I already have a beer sponsor. Oh, what is it? Uh, Avery Brewing, Boulder, Colorado. Whoa. 
All right. We've always wanted a brewery sponsor at Let's Run. If Official beer of Let's Run. Nickeler or Evil Twin out there or, you know, Sage, your sponsor wants to help us out. Yeah, how many sponsors do you have, Stage? I mean, you got Hoka Oni. Yeah, Hoka, uh, Nathan, uh, the Hydration Pack, Nathan Sports, uh, Drymax Socks, Compressed Port Calf Sleeves, uh, working on a sunglass sponsor still. Got Avery Brewing, My Spring Energy makes the energy gel. I have a custom gel, the Canterbury. I'm not going to name all the sponsors. They're more minor ones. Uh, Squirrel, Squirrel's Nut Butter, Drymax Socks. <laughs> Since you're such a good marketing guy, you can be our agent. We should start the Sage Canada Let's Run.com Ultra Classic or Ultra Race. We could become the comrades of the 21st century. Uh, that sounds tough. <laughs> yeah, no one's no one's going for it. We have no tradition, <laughs> no nothing. No. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Apparently, we can talk about ultras forever because we're an hour, over an hour in and we need to wrap this up. But uh, I don't know, a couple things. So you train about 120 miles a week. Do people really vary, or do you think that's the sort of sweet spot? Because I would say top marathoners probably train in that same general ballpark as well. But there's some thread on Let's Run about some guy named Mike Shattuck. He's not a famous ultra runner, but he's running 275 miles a week. I mean, are there guys doing crazy stuff? Like, I don't know, Cam Levins in college is running over 150 a week. Uh, just do Are there ultra guys? I mean, I guess it ranges the spectrum, but are there – do you follow other people's training? Would you say the mileage is pretty consistent or there's just tremendous variation? You know, mountain guys like Killian Jornet are doing different stuff than you're doing. How would you sum it up? Yeah. Uh, I mean, on a personal note, I actually have an average 120 miles a week. That's been like my high. So I probably should average it, but I've been even lower than that. But yeah, you see a lot of variation depending on what event they're targeting. So if they're training for a hundred mile mountain race like UTMB, maybe they're training 20 hours a week and they're doing a hundred miles a week like Tim Tolson, but he's doing 25,000 feet of climbing a week. So it's a 20 hour training week of running, but it's only a hundred miles, but it's 25,000 feet of climbing up, up mammoth mountain, right? Uh, Jim Walmsley, maybe he's doing 140 miles a week. He's doing 15 to 20 mile single runs almost every day. Maybe he does a 30 mile long run out on the trails. Uh, that's pretty high mileage. A lot of guys are probably, only a hundred miles a week, but they're spending a lot of time out there. Killian spends a bunch of time skiing all winter. He does ski mountaineering. He's skiing for like six hours a day sometimes. So he's putting in these major training weeks and then he goes out for a three hour run. Whether or not his weekly mileage is really over 80 miles a week is probably not, but he's doing all the supplemental stuff and he's doing a lot of climbing. I think it would be hard to, to win a race like comrades without being in, in at least sub two twenty marathon type of shape. And for that, unless you're really talented, you usually have to run probably over 80 miles a week for most people. So, uh, you know, the higher the mileage, generally the better. I ran 150 miles a week at Cornell once, and that was my maximum, and it, it was too much for me. Couldn't handle it. Uh, and there's some, you know, injury risk as well. But, yeah, top ultra runners, a lot of times they don't run as much mileage as, as top road marathon runners, I'd say. Maybe we should get some, like, definitions out of the way. If we're going to come up with the best ultra races, does an ultra have to be more than 42 kilometers? Or, I don't know, like Killian Jordan, I think he's done a sky marathon or some of those less than a marathon distance. Like, should we include very hard mountain races in these things that aren't over the marathon distance? Like, I don't know. We don't, we don't even have – we're an hour into this. We don't even have the definitions down. But I'm thinking – I'm just kind of thinking, okay, well, maybe we should group these. We should have yeah. mountain, road, trail, 
also through in distance. Well, does that acronym MUT, do most people refer to MUT? Or if we just say, what are the best ultra trail runs, ultra runs, do people know that means mountain, ultra, and trail? Or should we should we rename it, what are the most best MUT races? And do people actually use that acronym? Well, the USATF came up with the MUT acronym, I think, because it's mountain, ultra, trail under the USATF category. And I, I even did a, a video called MUT Runner, Mountain, Ultra, Trail, and yeah, that includes shorter races. I mean, the, the technical definition of an ultra is that it has to be longer than 42.2K. It has to be over 26.2 miles, so it's got to be usually a 50K. Uh, some hardcore ultra runners will say, no, the real ultras are only 100 miles. 50K doesn't count. Uh, but I think that's silly. To me, it's all just running. I like the acronym MUT better because some of the most competitive trail mountain races in the world are marathon distance, right? Uh, Zagama. Look up videos of Zagama on YouTube if you want to see fans cheering during a, a trail race. Uh, it's it's one of the most competitive historic mountain races in the world. Sierra all is only about a 19 or 20 mile race in, in the Swiss Alps. It's one of the most competitive trail races in the world. It's not an ultra. So I like the MUT uh, acronym. I, I think it confuses a lot of people, but trail running to me, I don't really care if it's an ultra, if, you know, if it's a 50K or it's a 42K trail race. I'm going to train pretty similar for it because it's going to be a mountain race and it's going to be over 20 miles. It's going to be tough. But, uh, you know, to me, I, I don't just get caught up on ultras. Most of the races I'm doing this year are only a marathon. I think we're, I'm going to put you on the spot here in a minute, maybe give you a second to think about it. But like, what are your top five ultra races? So you can think about that for a second. I feel bad for Sage. We didn't hype folks, his social media presence. I mean, Sage, looks like you have a website, sagerunning.com. That's our coaching business. Yeah. Well, if you want to be coached by Sage, go to sagerunning.com. Also, VO2max Productions in YouTube. If you just type in Sage Canyon YouTube, it'll take you to VO2max Productions, where he's got over 140,000 followers. Also on Twitter, it's at Sage Canada. While you're thinking of your top five lists, Sage, we're talking about like muscle biopsy and stuff like that. Don't you have some Japanese heritage in you? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, half Japanese ethnicity-wise. So that does that make you feel like yes, I'm going to be naturally good at the marathon? Like, uh, I admire the the depth and the tradition of Japanese marathon running, and uh, like I said, the I mentioned uh, the world record in the hundred k is is very impressive as well with uh, Kazami, and just like the discipline and the lifestyle. You know, I I I'm like fourth generation Japanese American, so like my parents, my grandparents didn't even speak Japanese uh, growing up, but. You're not going to be joining a corporate Japanese economy team anytime soon. No, no. Um, but yeah, I definitely admire the the culture and it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a, a cool uh, training approach and the depth that they have for such a, a small country, relatively small country, is is pretty amazing. And I heard that Yuki Kawauchi's brother is an ultra marathon runner. Is that true, Stage? It is. Yeah, I was just looking up the results of the um, Lake Sar Sarnoma, I believe. There's a a hundred k race in japan where this guy ran the 609 and uh kawuchi's younger brother ran in that race i believe he ran like a 620 um and to put that in perspective max king's american record is is around 620 i believe as well that's the american record for 100k is max king still competing he is yeah he did uh the golden trail series race that i did last year uh with solomon uh he had some injury issues though so i think he like he was doing a 100k uh, actually, he did Lake Sonoma a couple weeks ago. These were part of the golden uh, ticket races. I think he wanted a qualifier for Western States, but he had to drop out, so he didn't get it. But yeah, he's still he's still running. All right, Robert. Speaking of still running, I will give you 100 bucks if you can tell me who this person is. Jeff Browning. How do you spell the last name? I couldn't. 
Browning, B-R-O-W-I-N-G. He is a famous old runner who got second place at the... Good. Actually, that's, out, that's close. He is 47 years old. On two different websites, Sage, they have him as the, uh, you can say if you agree with this, as the number two ultra runner of the year last year in 2018. I swear I'd never heard of him, or maybe I've heard of the name. But I Run Far had him as the second best ultra runner last year, as did Ultra Running Magazine. But he's 47, Sage, so like you can keep doing this. Would you say he's really the second best ultra runner? Or is it some of these, uh, we haven't even mentioned Dean Carnassus, but I think sometimes, I figure that, people who really cover the sport aren't going to follow for sort of gimmicky, but I feel like Dean Carnassus, he was voted like ESPN endurance athlete of the year. I think a couple times, like all endurance sport. And that was a joke because the ultra world wouldn't have viewed him as even the top ultra runner those years. But I think sometimes things that are unique instead of like really difficult, get played up in the ultra world or maybe more with the pop culture world when they look at ultra. But would you say just Jeff, a 47 year old number two ultra guy last year? Would you go along with that? Jeff is very good. Uh, he has he's beat me head to head, and he's he's amazing because he's in his forties. It gives me hope that I could still run well at ultras in my forties. Uh, the ultra that ranking list is only North American ultra runners. So Ultra Running Magazine does that ranking. It's only mainly U.S. runners, uh, so it's not a worldwide ranking, and it's it's voted on by a panel. Jeff did uh, do well in a lot of really big races uh, like Western States. He's done really well at Run Rabbit Run. Uh, and it's amazing. You know, he's, he's got a family. Uh, he's, he's very good, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, the ranking, I, I'm not going to get too into that. I mean, he's definitely really good. It's, it's impressive. Uh, but it's, that was just a U.S. ultra trail ranking and they're very biased with hundred mile distances usually as well. I'll, I'll say that he's not going to show up at comrades or interesting. Yeah. Cause I see now that the, I run far, same thing that was North American rankings. And they both had Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walsley as number one. Yeah, and they're very good as well. This is, I don't want to have you anger your fellow competitors, but if Comrades is the number one marathon, is there someone that comes out as the L.A. Kipchoge right now of the ultra scene? Like, is there a clear-cut heavyweight champ right now? Uh, if for Comrades? No, just for any. No, just overall, entire ultra. Well, then, then you're getting into the definitions with, are we including Mutt? Are we, are, you know, well, mountain the problem with our, our, our thing. And we've got to decide. I think most, wanna... most people would say Killian, Killian Jornet, cause he has the range in all mountain races, whether it's a, a half marathon or it's a hundred miles. He, he wins or podiums at most races in the mountains. Uh, I, you know, he doesn't do the runnables, the pavement stuff. He doesn't do the flat stuff, but he is the king of the mountains. The guys that win UTMB, Francois Dane, or uh, Xavier, um, you know, those guys that win UTMB, they're really good. Winning UTMB is a, a huge accomplishment. So that gives you a lot of credit in the ultra. Killing Jordan is a little like Pete Sampras. There's a flaw in his game. He can't win the French Open. Killing doesn't do the road. So why can't he win the UTMB, Sage, if he's so good at mountains? Who? Killian? Yeah. He's won UTMB multiple times. Okay. He was second. He actually dropped out last year because he got stung by a bee, supposedly. But... Uh, the year before or two years before he was second. Uh, and he's, he's also won it multiple times. Wait, is this the guy that may or may not have the Everest? He Everest? did the Everest, uh, the Everest record. Um, that's a totally different story. I don't know if I want to get into that, but he's, he's the king of the mountains. He's been around for forever. He he's, he's really good. 
He's really good. He's a really good technical runner. He's a mountain athlete. I was hoping to go the whole podcast without totally exposing my ignorance, but you think they'll notice an hour and 15 minutes in that I didn't know that Killian had won UTMB? Uh, well, the hardcore ultra fans. I mean, it, it's been a while since he's he's won there, but yeah, I forgot it's been so long. Yeah. All right, Sage, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make you leave. Give it. Give us your five top races here. Wait, now I'm, I think Americans are fascinated by Walmsley, just or at least maybe I am because he has a track background and he's so Killian is a better ultra runner. I, I guess I didn't find worldwide rankings, but you would say Killian's right now the number one, and would you say Jim Walmsley's number two, or am I just too American centric and has Killian ever won Western States or even run Western States. Oh, you're going to get, yeah. Killian's won Western States. He ran a slower time at Western States than Jim did though. Cause Jim has the course record at Western States, but they haven't gone head to head that much. The only time they've really gone head to head was at UTMB when Killian got second and Jim got fifth. Uh, and they went head to head at UTMB last year and they both dropped out. So they really haven't raced each other head to head. Uh, Xavier, Xavier, how do you pronounce his name? Wow. So he won. The one's the number one then. I'm going. Well, that. no, that's if you just count UTMB. No, they both haven't done comrades either. Uh, I believe there's a ITRA scoring system, International Trail Running Association scoring system. And I believe Jim is ranked ahead of Killian on that scoring system because uh, Jim is, has won a lot of big competitive races in the US, uh, Lake Sonoma, course record there, win there, Tarawera, races like that. But they, they really haven't raced each other head to head that much. Um, it's, uh, you know, Killian's been around for a really long time. Jim's been around for three, four years. Uh, you know, a lot of the U.S. mountain ultra trail runners have a, a track background. You know, Tim Tolson's been third twice at, at UTMB. He's only a 218 marathoner. He was only a 1435K guy like me in college. And he's been one of the most consistent uh, Americans at UTMB. Zach Miller who is, uh, I don't think he ever cracked 31 minutes for 10K in college, is one of the best ultra runners in the U.S., and he's been top 10 at UTMB. He's won the North Face 50-mile endurance challenge in San Francisco twice over guys like uh, Hayden Hawks and Tim Ferriss. So he's a, he's a force to be reckoned with as well. It's hard to rank guys unless they race head-to-head against each other. It's like Usain Bolt and Justin Gatlin, it sounds like. Who knew? Even the ultra marathoners are ducking each other. I don't know if they duck each other. It's just they get pulled into different races because they're they're more lucrative or they're more passionate about certain races. All right, Sage. We need it. Your top five ultra races. So are, are these by com- competition, competitive bucket list races for me or for people in general? You didn't you didn't specify that there. That's the problem. How do you think we should have the Let's Run audience specified, or should we have two or three different lists? I think we need categories. I could do most competitive ultras in the world. That's that was where I would start. Okay. In my opinion. So do you think we should have people do most competitive and then also do bucket list? Because we were gonna do this for marathons and we were like, okay, how we rank them? Then we're like the best marathons, and then we're like, it's so subjective. We were debating this internally, and Steve, employee one point one, was like, Oh, I hate the New York City marathon. I was like, What? It's like the one I would do because it's terrible for the sub elite. So he had a, he's like, as a sub elite runner, it's not that good. It's just very interesting. You're not going to get a good fast time. It's very interesting how people can be so subjective in their rankings. But I think a good place to start on Let's Run is, yeah, the, fine. You want to do the five most competitive ultras in the world? Let's hear it. All right. So most competitive, I think this is more objective. And, you know, a lot of the hardcore trail mountain guys will give me a hard time for this because they like the trail stuff. Uh, but I'm going to have to go with some road races 
to start for the top three, actually. So Comrades, hands down, is the most competitive. Uh, number two, I think, is Two Oceans. Again, it depends on the year a bit, but it's it's also, it's a lot like Comrades. You get a lot of the same guys running uh, 56K. It's, it correlates well to, to the marathon, and you get a lot of guys uh, in Africa that run it. So it, it's a very competitive race. There's good prize money. The next most competitive race, number three, I'd say, is the IAU World 100K Championships on the road. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, you have to make team USA or you, you represent your country. It got a lot of the top Japanese ultra runners all together. It's a standard distance, hundred K on the roads, very good competitive depth. Then number four, we're down to UTMB. It's the greatest mountain race probably in the world. It's the greatest, most competitive ultra in Europe. Uh, it's more competitive than Western States for sure. Cause you get a lot of guys that do both, but you get all the Europeans as well. So, you know, UTMB number four. After that, it's it's really hard. After that, I'd say it's a it's a big toss up because it really depends on the year. The North Face 50 mile in San Francisco has been historically very deep. If you look at the top 10 finisher times and the density of the top 10, uh, it's usually very close. Another race is called Transvolcania out in the Canary Islands, owned by Spain on the island of La Palma. That's also historically been a very competitive race. I've run there a couple of times when Killian didn't win. Uh, it depends on the year. Some years it's more weak than others, but it, it's a toss up for number five. I really am struggling to, to come up with number five because it, it depends on the year, what kind of field gets assembled. Okay, those are the most competitive, but what about the most prestigious? Like Boston may not be the, the hardest marathon to, to win. Like I was thinking about if you had me rank the world marathon majors, I would definitely say London first, but then I'm like, okay, who do I get second? Like, and it's really almost personal preference. Like our employee, Steve, Steve Soprano, your teammate at Cornell was like, Oh, Berlin. I'm like, Berlin? No way. I, I have to go with probably, I don't know, Boston or New York next just because of the prestige factor. So Okay, prestige factor, then you throw in Western states. You throw in Western states for sure, uh, especially for North American athletes. But would that be ahead of Two Oceans? Uh, it's more well-known than Two Oceans in, in most parts of, of Europe and the U.S., but there's the geography. If you won Two Oceans or if you won Western states, are you getting a lot more money for winning Western states in terms of your shoe contract? It would be similar. It would be similar. I think it would be harder for me personally to win two oceans than it would be to win Western States, but it would be hard for me to do both. I don't really like Western States because it's a net downhill. So what other are the real prestigious ones besides Western States? Say, do you need to start an up Western States? They need to reverse the course or something. I would love it if they reverse the course. The problem is you'd be running into the dark when you get into bear country. You'd be running up towards a, a Squaw Valley uh, up in the, the high Alpine environment and it'd start to be, for most people, it'd be getting dark and there'd be a lot of bears out. I already saw a massive bear during Western States in the middle of the afternoon and it was kind of scary. So that's probably part of the reason they don't want people to encounter bears at, at night. But if you're running UTMB 24 hours at night in the mountains in Switzerland, or aren't there bears in Europe? Uh, I don't, not as many. You're not as isolated. You're not out in the forest as much. You drop into major... You drop into little towns and villages and there's huts along the way and there's people lining the course and it's a it's a race with several thousand runners, so you're never really alone. Whereas at Western States it's it's only a couple hundred runners and you're in the high alpine environment at the first thirty miles, you're you're in bear country, definitely. Now UTMB, I I don't think there's a lot of bears in those mountains, if any. So besides Western States, what are the big prestigious ones that we didn't have in your top five list? You know, then I would actually go down to to forty two k races, uh, but I don't know if you want to count those. Oh yes, definitely. Okay, then then 
Zagama. Zagama in uh, Basque country, northern Spain, is definitely one of the most prestigious um, races. It's got the history. It's 42K, you know, Mount Blanc Marathon. Sierra Zanal in Switzerland has a huge history. It's some of the most competitive uh, mountain races in the world, if not the most competitive. And then you've got things like the the World Mountain Running Association World Championships, where you're only running 12K, but it's the it's the World Mountain Running Team. I've done it before. You represent your country, Team USA. Uh, Joe Gray does it a lot. He's been on the team a number of times. But you get you get teams from Uganda. You got we had one year there was a guy that the Olympic marathon champion got sixth place at the World Mountain Running Championships, uh, the South African runner. Um, so it's a very competitive mountain race, but it's only 12k. So and we're not gonna. It's obviously not an ultra, but it's it's mountain running. Yeah, why doesn't Joe Gray do more? Does he do some of these really long ones yet, or he hasn't done those yet? He's done a couple 50Ks, but they've been pretty low-key. I don't think he... Yeah, he, he doesn't do anything over 50K, really. He's really good at, at the half marathon and mountain running, and he's got the 28-minute 10K speed. He's got the you know 102, 103 half marathon speed. His marathon, I think he's around 218, maybe. Uh, so I, I don't think he likes the the longer distances as much, or he realizes it's not maybe in his sweet spot or his focus, it might change as he gets older. I think he's probably in his early thirties. So maybe he'll move up as he gets into his mid thirties. Got it. Is there money at the, at the IAU hundred K world championships? Uh, you know, I've never done them before. Uh, you would definitely get a bonus for being for most sponsors. We give you a bonus for doing well there for sure, because you could say I'm world champion and even making team USA. A lot of times you get, uh, there's financial incentive to make your national team, so it's not a ton of money, though. It wouldn't be a ton of money. So it's not quite as lucrative to to do some of the. They also have a trail championship, but it's which is pretty deep. It's been it's been getting more competitive, but it's the financials. It's not as lucrative. It's more lucrative financially as an American ultra runner to do really well at a hundred miles and the longer ultras. Got it. All right, Robert. You got any final questions for Sage? Uh, I think Sage has helped me. I've come up with my triple crown, the comrades, UTMB and Western States. I wrote those early list for the triple crown. I'm now confused though, if I'm going to do the most competitive and then bucket list or also most prestigious. I might have to have three lists. But anyways, Sage, it's been an honor to teach to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me on. So much enjoyed it. We've, we've gone way more than our hour. We've gone almost an hour and a half, but I'm sure that uh, everyone will enjoy it. Yeah, no, it's really cool. <laughs> Thanks. I hope the ultra and, and trail crowd doesn't get too upset with us. Look, look, people, we want to learn your sport. It's fascinating to us. We like the fact that it's unpredictable a lot. We want to bring – actually, I don't know if I should bring Kipchoge into it because then it might become more predictable. Or maybe even if he lost, it would be even better. So like the Olympic marathon champion losing. But fantastic stuff. We'll be following you, Sage, as you win Comrades on your way to winning it in a few weeks. Yes, I'll try my best. <laughs> comrades, it's comrades. <laughs> comrades, you got the name right the first time, Robert. Now he's got it wrong. It's like Abu Dhabi versus Abu Dhabi. It's Abu Dhabi. No, it's good. It's good, and it's yeah, like you said, it's unpredictable. And part of the draw is running in beautiful places and and experiencing that because it's so different running in the mountains and trails and in different countries. And that variety, I think, a lot of ultra trail runners like being out in the woods, being out in nature, running into bears. Thanks to Hoka for sponsoring this. And I guess this podcast will probably go up on Thursday. And if we haven't launched 
the Hoka, what are the best ultras in the world on Let's Run. Be sure to check back next week because by then I think we're going to have fine-tuned it and we're going to give away some great prizes to Let's Run visitors who help us frame this debate. So that'll be going on for the entire month of May. Sage, thank you. Good luck with the running, short, long, and ultra. All right, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, keep up the great work.